This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Jeff Fisher, Adam Goldstein, Chris Fry, and Bull Gervaisi, uh, the four members of Policy of Three. Uh, we're conducting this interview on December 27th, 2013 at Cinder Garden in West Philadelphia. This is part of Loud Fast Philly. Uh, as a little bit of a preface to this interview, uh, Bull and Chris were previously interviewed about the Cabbage Collective and uh, in that interview, I uh, discuss how they discovered punk and, and um, the path that that set them on. So we're not going to talk to them so much about that in this interview. Uh, we'll deal mostly uh, with Jeff and Adam's early experiences, and then Bull and Chris will come in more as the interview moves into the formation of the band. So you're advised to go back and listen to the other interview if you'd like to hear um, how things came about for them. Anyway, uh, I guess we should begin. Uh, Jeff and Adam, I'll kind of bounce between the two of you, and, and of course, you know, Bill and Chris, feel free to, to say stuff as, as we do the thing. Um, what year, we'll start with you, Jeff, what year were you born and where? I was born in 1972. Uh, I was born in um, Stratford, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, uh, JFK Hospital, I think it's called now, I can't remember now. Okay. <laughs> I think I was pretty, pretty, pretty sure that's what it was called. Uh, but yeah, uh, okay. June, June 24th in 1972. Super. Uh, Adam? I was born in January 73 in Philly. Yeah, okay. And did you grow up in Philadelphia? No, I grew up uh, in Cherry Hill Okay. with my summers in England, so I had a little bit of a different experience. Why were you having summers in England? My mom's English, okay. and we went and stayed and lived with my grandparents in the English countryside, New Yorkshire Dales. Nice. All creatures, great. And small. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you saw James Harriet there. I, I did see James Harriet there. And he stuck his arm there. up a cow's butt. I didn't see him with his arm <laughs> up a cow's butt, but I did see him in his veterinary practice and at lots of. But you actually saw the. I actually oh. saw James Harriet on wow. numerous occasions. No shit. And the wow. uh, TV show was filmed in and around my grandparents' village. Nice. It's so, kind of <laughs> neat. Yeah, that's super. Uh, Jeff's taking. A, are you taking a picture of us? Yeah. <laughs> Almost. Well, you gotta lean in that way more. There you go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk to you a bit more about this. So, Adam, uh, tell me a little bit about you uh, growing up. You know, your interest as a as a young man. You know, prior to your discovery of punk, what you were doing. Yeah. So, you know, I think I always had, you know, I was kind of a shy kid. Um, you know, played soccer, played trombone. Was kind of into music and stuff. But um, my dad plays guitar and was pretty current on music. He lived in London in the mid 60s, was a total mod guy, was going to see The Who every week at Ward or and seeing them smash their guitars and stuff like that. And my mom was there too and um, they were living in London at that time. And Did you um, see the Beatles? No, my they, my dad was too cool to see the Beatles. Okay, right. my mom liked the Rolling Stones because the Beatles were too clean cut. Too clean cut. Um, so we, you know, and so I kind of got that from my dad. And like early on, I mean, I was like, you know, I remember being like nine, ten years old, and my dad would like tape IRS as the cutting edge off of like MTV and stuff like that, and we would watch it, and um, you know, and so I think that you know, I definitely got into music classic rock, listen to my dad's old records pretty early. Like, you know, I was listening to a lot of Who records and stuff. So I, it was very early on that that became, you know, I was a kid 
mm-hmm. and that became something I was interested in. And like, um, does he still have his record collection? He does. Yeah. He has, my dad played in rock bands when he was 12 in the mid fifties and he has original pressing Elvis records and he has who releases English only, you know, releases before they signed and stuff like that, set 45s and things. So does this um, go to you when he becomes a ghost? He also has all his old guitars, (laughs) which he bought new in the, in the, in the the sixties, which have, does he have um, a Telecaster? He does not have a Telecaster. He has a couple Gibsons and um, some Fenders, but yeah. All right, pop back over to you, Jeff. Uh, mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about growing up, Jeff. You know, prior to punk, what you were interested in, what you were doing. Yeah, so I'm uh, similar to Adam, except the whole UK Who stuff that was going on. Yeah. Uh, my father was a musician too. He he played drums. Um, his bands practiced actually in our house in our basement. What um, type of so bands was he? It it was uh, a lot of like. 60s, 70s rock kind of stuff. Um, one of his bands was called Dragonwick. You know, and there's photos of him. And, yeah. Wait, the pro- a progressive sort of progressive rock band? Uh, is that what the? I mean, did they make a record? Yeah, they, I don't know if they made any pressings. I know that I there is a him. weird American prog band called Dragonwick that yeah. maybe. Uh, Shit, oh man, wow, that'd be, that'd be crazy. Really... <laughs> <laughs> that'd be really crazy. I know he's done records. I don't know which records though. Which man, ones had records? I might have your dad's record. That'd be so wild because I don't. So. No shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dragonwick with a Y. Yeah, yeah. The that's y. the way it's spelled in the thing. What no the fuck kidding. is a Dragonwick anyway? <laughs> <laughs> of course it has a Y. <laughs> <laughs> How could they not be a prog band? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, even if they weren't trying to be. A... Yeah. Alright, I could interview your father next. Yeah. Okay. Uh, nothing to do with this thing, but uh, guy you want to stop it now? And yeah, yeah. Let's go over. Uh, um, all right. Well, anyway, sorry. About yeah, that. yeah. But, um, so no problem. Yeah. So that that for me was um, was really my intro to music. Um, my, both my parents love music and. Um, always had records around the house, you know, on listening to records. Uh, my mom is a major Beatles fan, um, so I had, uh, you know, listened to a lot of Beatles when I was, was young to the point where my mom would ask me, so who's singing right now? And I would have to know if it was John, Paul, Ringo, or George. <laughs> if he's singing know, about so. an octopus, it's probably Ringo. <laughs> it's Ringo, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, and then... Um, as I got older, my father, he wanted to teach me drums, and I, I had an interest in it, but I always was like, I want to learn guitar. You know, I thought the guitar was the coolest thing. I always wanted to go over there and pick up the guitar that the guys had, you know, hanging out there in, in their practice space. So the first, uh, first thing that I did learn, actually, was drums. Um, he did give me some lessons and tried to be patient with me, mm-hmm. <laughs> learning drums. Um, so then up until, um, I guess, really high school, uh, how how far up are we going in this on this topic? Or I mean, uh, well, what, I guess what I was trying to get was I was establishing kind of like your your youth right. prior to punk, like what kind prior type of punk, yeah you yeah. were interested in, and then yeah. like now we'll kind of move into you know where yeah, does this I mean, thing? I mean, I was I was pretty much you know um, uh, pretty sheltered, <laughs> I would say. Uh-huh. Um, so I didn't really have much of a of an identity except what I'd learned from my parents. You know, I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't a. I was a pretty quiet kid, kept to myself, um, dressed in the clothes that my mom gave me, and um, good animals. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> corduroys, the big thick corduroys, and walking down the halls. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. So I, was, I, was, yeah, so I, so I had another thing too. Thinking about this, so I was going to England every summer. So when I was seven, eight, I remember this. You know, it was 1980, 1981. Mm-hmm. You know, and here it's like disco and the pop music. You know, my sister would listen to the top 40 stations. We'd go there, and it was like 
new wave yeah. was big. And I remember me and my sister making cassette tapes off of the radio where we were taping songs. And like I had older cousins and stuff like that, you know, and like we would all throughout the course of summer, we would tape like all the new wave hits and stuff like that and bring them back. And that's what we would listen to like throughout the year. And to this day, like my, like probably like if you took my top 20 favorite records, like 18 of them were recorded in 1979. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just like I love that, that era. But I think that, and then, you know, and we were in, I had cousins and aunts and uncles in London and we were seeing like <clears throat> punk was four or five years old. And I had, a, you know, an aunt in Kensington. We were going down there and like seeing that. And it was really exciting. My sister's two years older. So she was really into it, and it was like exciting to like see that. So, I, really early on, I was definitely like into not just kind of developing the foundation for the music, but the culture and you know seeing the fashion and all that kind of. It was so different than where I was growing up, mm-hmm. you know. And like I didn't feel like I fit in, you know, in Cherry Hill with like you know the kids in my neighborhood and stuff. And to be able to have that was kind of neat. So it seems like it would probably would have been a fairly smooth transition for you to kind of move to it, like in earnest, to be involved in it because you already had this foundation, you know, that had, had built. So how then do you wind up kind of involved in punk? So, yeah. You know? So, you know, I think like once I got into middle school and high school, that was when the metal stuff really hit. Um, and the friends I did have around were kind of into that and... You know, I definitely went through a period. I remember seeing Iron Maiden and Yngwie Malmsteen on my 13th birthday, which my dad took me to the show, which I give him a lot of credit for to this day, and he loved it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> which is really funny if you know my dad, because yeah, he's coming off as this really cool guy, but, you know, he's a short Jewish guy that looks like Woody Allen, so, <laughs> you know, it's like, he's <laughs> very, very different in person than his history might suggest. But, um... But yeah, I think the metal scene and then from that, like, the hardcore bands, you know, really hit. And I remember being in, like, 7th and 8th grade and me and my friend would be delivering our newspapers and that's when we started listening to, like, Dead Kennedys and Minor Threat. And, and I, like, would pick up my dad's guitar and be like, I can play this, you know, like, play a power chord or whatever. And it just, you know, and I think then going into high school, it's like, my friends and everyone that was into it, they were forming bands, you know, and like that was the style that I was into. And I also wasn't a very good guitar player. So like I wasn't going to be in the thrash band because I couldn't thrash, you know, like. Uh, but Probably I could, could have been in Cryptic Slaughter though. <laughs> but I could play, you know, I could play a minor threat cover or like, you know, you know, something like that. So, yeah. So shift back over to you, Jeff. Then how did the punk come into your life if you were living this kind of sheltered existence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it came through, really through music. Um, I had some friends that, um, it, it was more in high school for me, probably my junior year or so, um, that uh, listened to Dead Milkman and Meyer Threat, um, The Cure and The Smiths, and I just thought that, the, you know, I just loved the sound of the music. Um, skateboarding. Uh, they were into skateboarding, so they got me into skateboarding as well, um, and uh, became a little skate rat, you know, and and all of the, all of the things that went along with that, right? Yeah. Um, and so at that through really through through them through skateboarding, that's where I started getting into more of the punk, um, you know, side of music, and um, there was a kid that um, 
I had in in uh, an art class that I went to to school with uh, Chris Butcherelli, um, who was he all he just he just knew music inside and out, and and he always had really good taste in music. He still does, but um, he would give me uh, mixtapes. You know, he'd make me some mixtapes of stuff. He's like, oh, if you like this, man, you gotta you mm-hmm. gotta check out all these. Everybody bands. needs one of those. Yeah, yeah. 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 He, Chris Butcherelli was my guy. He was my guy that really um, showed me the ropes. You know, with, with all the good music. So that's that's where it started. Did either of you go to any punk shows in in Jersey or Philadelphia prior to when the band came together? Oh, yeah. I, I saw the I saw the Ramones. So one of my be- my one of my best friends at the time, Herschel, who's you know been in and out of the scene and is still a, a musician. Um, his mom was a professor at Glassboro, now Rowan, Rowan I guess. Um, and the Ramones played there. And I went to that been, show. Yeah, it must have been like 13 or 14. Yeah, they played with, with uh, Tommy, Tommy Conwell. Yeah, and like, there would be like half the audience would be like, oh, fuck you, Tom. Yeah. And then the other half would be like, oh, fuck you, Ramon. Yeah. You're a bunch of freaks. I was, you know, so I, I went to that show. Um, I saw the Suicidal Tendencies at the Northeast Empire. Nice. With like 120 people or something like that. That was an awesome show. My dad dropped me off. You know, my parents dropped me off in Northeast Philly or whatever. Um, we went, I went to some pizzazz shows pretty early. Um, you remember who you saw there? I'm trying to remember, I saw uh, Vision, uh, some of the straight, straight Edge show. Um, I can't remember. Yeah. Was it Instead? Did they play that show too? I don't remember now. I saw but, Instead there, so it was probably. Yeah, I, I went to a couple show. shows yeah. there. Um, but yeah, but mostly Straight Edge shows um, at Pizzazz and other shows at Northeast Empire. Went to the Thrash shows there and stuff too. But that was all like. I, mean, I was like 14, 15, I mean, 16. It was all before I was driving. Any Bonnie's Rocks? Um, so my sister, <laughs> my sister's two years older than me, dated a lot of metal dudes. So yes, I went to lots of Bonnie's Rock shows. Um, rocks with two X's. Yeah. That's right. And then and Herschel was playing in, you know, so I had friends that were playing in bands that were playing there and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, I was seeing a lot of my sister's boyfriend's bands. Which is funny to think about now, too. Not to jump ahead too much, but uh, just since we're on the topic of Bonnie's Rocks, do you remember the show uh, that we played there that our uncle... My Uncle Mike uh, came to. Only time he ever came to see us play. Uh, He was behind the metal fenced-in bar when the Nazis showed up because this was 1989 or 90 or something. Good good year for Nazis. Probably probably 1990. Uh, AC Skins, I think. Yep. Uh, So yeah, the Nazis showed up. There was this huge brawl, and uh, that was the only time our uncle ever came to see we play. <laughs> That's very unfortunate. Uh, I want to go back to you, Jeff. Uh, what, yep. Were you going to, did you want to go into any shows? No. Yeah, no, I, I didn't go to shows at all, um, really until I started hanging out with these guys and playing music with them. So I, I was, I think, I, I, man, I, I don't know what the first show was I went with you guys. Maybe it was um, Fugazi that, that um, when they played in that car garage. The park garage. Yeah. 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 That may have been the first show I went to. It's a damn good first show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure that was my first show. There's a show that like if people could build time machines, people would be going back, back to, to that, that show. goddamn show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was a show we tried to go to in New York at CBGB's um, with Rich, with Rich Bevilacqua and his sister. Um, I think it was uh, Henry Rollins, maybe a spoken word. Yep. And we were too young. Yep, they wouldn't let us in. They wouldn't let us in. <laughs> oh, you went all the way up there and they yeah, said, go yeah. take a hike? So I think I was like my first 
official show, but couldn't get in. Just sat out in the car. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> I might have gone to a city garden show early. I remember driving up there with, like, before I could drive. I was, like, 16. And um, I had, a, in high school, I had a bunch of friends that were really into, like, more of the art rock noise scene. So we would go up to knitting, the Knitting Factory and see, like, John Zorn and, um, oh, what's that other band? Uh, something Nerves, Dr. Nerve, or I don't remember. But uh, but that was fun, too. That was, like, a good exposure to, like, and again, I was, I was young, you know. And at the time, it didn't feel like it, but when I think back on it and think, like, Huh, my daughter's only a couple years away from that. <laughs> when I let her get in the car and drive up, my, not that my parents necessarily knew that's what I was doing, but drive up to, 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 drive to New York and go to the knitting factory and see shows. I guess we'll start on then what was at initially, matter of fact, and then became Policy of Three, um, and bring, bring everybody in. Um, so talk about what, what was the early incarnation of the band? You know, who who was in it? How did it come about? What was the idea behind it? All that. Uh, well, Which you'd like? I guess my memory. I remember um, sort of a friend of mine was in a, some local band where I lived in South Jersey. Nuclear and, Override. Nuclear Override. <laughs> yeah. Got to get uh, everything in here. <laughs> and, uh, he played. Um, the world history. With friends of ours, and that's how I met Bull. That we went to his, um, the drummers. Of Nuclear Override's house, he had a show in his house, so I met Bull and met uh, Rich Bevilacqua, who was, um, I guess, the original guitarist for Posse, if you were a matter of fact at the time. Um, so that's how I kind of got introduced to Bull. Um, and then over a course of maybe about a year or so, we hung out a couple more times, and it's one of those things where you start hanging out with a group of people, and you start re realizing you have some common interests and things like that with the music and everything. And I can just remember, it's it seems like it's it's weird how natural it seems that, you know, I never picked up an instrument in my entire life, and I don't think Bull did either at nope, that point. not at all. And, um, <laughs> I mean, Rich was playing guitar for about a year or so, and we just were talking, we are somewhere, mall probably or something, we were talking about bands, of course, and stuff, and of course, even at that time, you know, we knew that all the bands that we looked up to still did, basically did the same thing. They decided they wanted to play music, and they weren't like, you know rock stars or great musicians they decide this is what we're going to do and I think we kind of took that and say well we can do it too and I think I remember I guess we were talking and since Bull I mean since um, Rich played guitar obviously he played guitar and then I think I said I'll play drums and Bull's like he'll play bass <laughs> and then um, I think we had a practice or two and then Jeff came in. I think yeah. it was. I think we had a, a practice or you two guys just had, messing around. And then, yeah, you guys played. And then Jeff came in long. maybe a month later or so, and yeah. uh, at my um, at my parents' house where we practiced, and uh, we just uh, messed around. We played, tried to play cover songs, you know, like yeah. the typical at the time, Minor Threat song, seven second song. Yeah. Like that. Were you playing guitar too, or just singing? No, so it's just singing. In the yeah, show. yeah. So at that at at that point, it's actually kind of it's strange that we even came to know each other because you guys went to you believe in different talent different high school than me um, and uh, I ended up having a, a friend that I was pretty close to in high school Bill Eilenfeld um, we met these two girls that we both were dating uh, Chris Blackman uh, I was dating and Annette what was her name I can't remember her name but um, Annette Horny what? Annette Horny, Horny? yeah 
she she uh, she was dating Bill, um, and it, one one afternoon it was during the summer. Um, I was talking to Chris on the phone and um, talking about music or something. I can't remember exactly, but then and Rich happened, Rich Bevilacqua happened to be around, and she was like, "Oh, you know, you should talk to my friend Rich. You guys probably you guys seem like you're into the same music and things, you know." Um, so talked to him. I was like, "Okay, cool." So we started talking and. And um, he said, I would mentioned that I wanted to learn guitar, something I always wanted to learn to play, just never did it. And he's like, oh, I, I can play, I'll show you some stuff, come on by someday and, and you know, I'll show you a couple things, get you started. Um, so from there, going into going to his house to learn how to play guitar from Rich Bevilacqua, um, <laughs> that's where I started knowing these guys. Um, and I think he was just like, why don't you just come by and sing, you know? So I, I, know, I remember the first time I went there and met you guys, um, you, there, we had a little boombox on the floor, um, where we, you know, we were just playing and recording that, and I was laying on the floor, you know, <laughs> singing like screaming, into the, yeah, the yeah, screaming into the built-in mic, you know, those were our first tapes, which I'm sure would just be amazing if anyone had those. I Chris probably do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, just odd, right, that, uh, by chance, through yeah. a conversation. I remember the, the first time Chris, uh, Rich and I were talking about playing music together uh yeah like chris said he was like oh i play guitar you know you should play bass and i was like I, yeah i guess so i don't even really know what that is but uh and then i asked my parents if they'd buy me a bass and they said no uh so i eventually had to save up some money to buy this really shitty uh i don't even know what they're called like the short beginner basses uh one of those so i had that for a while and this crappy little combo amp mm. and it gets from from my vantage point, it's interesting because, like, if you back then that summer or what spring of '89 or whatever, if you saw me a year before, it was completely different. I mean, I was starting to get into, I was skating sort of and getting into the music and everything a year or so before, but it was I was still kind of that, I guess, uh, I don't know, insecure. Cause I'm still insecure now, but kind of like this, like <laughs> not really sure what I'm what I'm doing. You know, just kind of you know doing whatever, but then. It's almost like a year zero, so to speak. Basically, it's like, yeah, you know, everything started over again. And uh, got rid of the puffy jacket. Yeah, well, puffy jacket. No, not yet. <laughs> it was still rough for maybe that winter. I didn't wear it all the time, but but it was like a complete like clean the slate and start all over again. And it was it was a pretty dramatic change in that sense. And uh, it was a. Uh, but I remember I remember how into it I was because, right after school. Um, School's done for that year. Uh, we went on a family vacation, and I remember it was only a week, but I remember it was like absolute torture because like I had to get a hi hat. I remember I didn't have a hi hat. I needed one real bad. I remember we went to um, the uh, Outer Banks, North Carolina, and uh, me and my friend uh, John, who was friends with all of us, big John. We uh, went to some music place in like the Outer Banks, like Duck or something. And I bought like this like cheap hi-hat, you know, kit in North Carolina, so I had to have it then, bring it back and stuff. It was all-encompassing, it became like, that was everything. And it was like a week away, and it was like torture. I just remember how, like, it became like, that was, that was all that really mattered. Band's name was uh, Matter of Fact, which sounds like a very straight-edge type of band name. Was that, was that intentional, or is that just the way that it sounds, you know? In uh, well, for me... I wanted to be a part of that scene so bad. Like I wanted that scene us, isn't the straight edge scene, or just yeah, the punk scene. Okay. Uh, I wanted us to be a, you know, straight edge hardcore band, and 
be able to play with the contemporary bands of that time. And Who were your favorite dudes at the time? Uh, I mean, I was very influenced by a lot of the kind of classic New York hardcore bands uh, of that era. You know, Youth Today, Gorilla Biscuits, Side by Side. Uh, and then the only a few years later, but uh, kind of the contemporaries to us were more like Mouthpiece, Resurrection, uh, Lifetime. Those were the Jersey bands mm-hmm. uh, that we played with a lot. Uh, but we just couldn't do it. We just mm-hmm. did not fit no. that <laughs> that scene. Yeah. We never did. Like We played a show with Earth Crisis. That was a little bit later. One of their first shows in Syracuse. That, yeah, Syracuse. Yeah. And it was a fucking disaster. I don't remember that being bad. We did not go over mm-hmm. well. No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, no, nobody, I mean, at that point, like, I, I can't imagine any member of the band would have had that kind of, like, really forceful edge personality to put forward. Yeah, I mean, you know. so I wasn't in the band yet, but I was no. playing in another, I was in a band called Incompetent, that was a straight edge band, and we had played a few shows, we played Skins, amongst <laughs> the t-shirt racks, <laughs> on, like, a Sunday afternoon. They had you should shows. probably explain what, what Skins, Skins was. Skins was a, a store on South Street, a punk store on South Street. Um, you guys were probably time. Zipperhead was more famous because <laughs> of their, you know, uh, inclusion in the Dead Milkman song. The, uh, yeah. Dead Milkman song, but Skins was was probably just as well known uh, at the time. But um, but yeah, I think something about the straight edge thing really, you know, me and my friends like it really, yeah, it really hit something. You know, like listening to those early Minor Threat records and stuff like that, like. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it's coming out of the 80s and the whole glam rock and a lot of that stuff. It was just, you know, we were all kind of like shy. A lot of us were like kind of shy and awkward kids that, you know, would have been interested in arty counterculture stuff in previous generations. And this was kind of a way to be somewhat counterculture that was, you know, had some positivity around it and... um, you know, I don't know, it kind of went against some other stuff that we were seeing that the other kids were doing, you know, getting drunk on the country club, you know, golf course at night or like, you know, doing these things that for whatever reason we didn't feel comfortable with. Yeah, I'm curious to know the other three of you as well, like what, what drew you to Straight Edge? What was the appeal? Uh, I guess we'll start with Jeff and then go Chris and then Phil. Uh, I, I think it would it falls really a, a lot in line with what you're saying. You know, it was it was I didn't feel um, in during that time in high school. I wasn't comfortable with the the party goers, the the obnoxious, you know, loud and and um, goofy, you know, lunky stuff that was going around. I just I just was never comfortable with it. it just never it never resonated with me. Um, and the that. Um, Hearing, hearing the hearing, minor threat and youth of today. I remember yeah, uh, getting a break down the walls. You know, break down the walls. It was uh, one of the first like real in your face, straight edge things that just really kind of I don't know resonated with me in some way. Um, and obviously minor threat as well. Um, yeah, it just it just seemed to fit in for me at the time where what what was uh, what made sense to me, what what felt comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. You know, Chris. Yeah, pretty much the same thing. I mean, I never drank or smoked really or anything like that when I was, you know, young or, you know, early, early years of high school or anything. And, you know, at the time I was, I never was into that scene. And I was, you know, kind of, um, 
sort of anonymous, I guess you would say, in high school. And it always annoyed me, but I, I guess I really didn't know how to express it or what it, you know, how to articulate what I really hated about it. And then, you know, I kind of just discovered all this music and stuff, and the, the lyrics are kind of like almost explaining what's, you know, the situation. You know, I was in school and everything, and I was like, yeah, this, you know, kind of validated my thoughts, basically. Like, yeah. there's a reason why, you know, it wasn't like I was, like, some... Uh, I wasn't like um, you know uh, different or um, I'm trying to think of the right word. It, well, I, there was nothing wrong with me, basically. You know, it was, maybe some, there was something wrong with them at the right. time. You basically. weren't the defective one. Yeah, I wasn't the defective one. It was yeah. something wrong with them, you mm-hmm. know, at the time. And uh, it, that's how it just um, you know it sank in. And I think it was a, I guess what's important is how the, I think our band how it kind of for the whole history of it, basically. I think I guess when we the band first started and we all started hanging out and stuff. I think our friends came from like all different musical interests and interests in general. And it was never just, mm-hmm. we're all straight edge kids. I mean, I think even at the time, you know, we never wore X's on our hands or anything like that. I mean, we're, we're into that music. We, New York city, hardcore and stuff, but we, we liked operation Ivy. We liked bands, you know, all kind of different, um, you know, genres of punk rock and things like that. And we had friends who, you know, we're, Maybe they're more into the cure or things like that, and that's not necessarily in the hardcore. And we all hung out, and I think at that time we kind of just we accepted everybody, and I think that kind of carried through the whole time that we weren't yeah. really, you know, we're only going to hang out with hardcore people and people that are straight edge and things like that. We're only going to play this, and we were never like that. And yeah. I think that's why we never really fit into the whole straight edge scene because I think we just didn't really. There was a lot of ideas and the message, the music, I guess we liked. There's aspects of it that we didn't like then. Even soon after we got, kind of discovered it, we were realizing, like, you know, we're not these tough guys. You know, some of the behavior we saw at shows that we didn't agree with, we're like, this is, like, stupid. So, you know, early on, we were sort of, like, kind of in this limbo, so to speak, for a while, where we didn't really fit in with things. Yeah. And it was, it, I guess the first year or so, it was kind of like that. We wanted to play shows, but it was like, we couldn't really find a niche, so to speak, as far as playing shows like say like in right in Pennsylvania at the Unisound which um, did a lot of like the big hardcore straight hardcore shows or other places like that so yeah I'm oh, sorry oh I just wanted to throw it over to Bull real quick to, to his his uh, interest in straight edge and then we'll go back into it uh, I mean similarly to everyone else I was also well I was kind of painfully shy uh, as a kid and just didn't really have that many friends growing up and you being my brother, <laughs> we uh, spent a lot of time together and got into punk at the same time. Uh, and for me, you know, being younger than you, uh, obviously I was younger and I was 12 uh, <laughs> when we got into it. <clears throat> and uh, so that kind of, that just started to kind of create the, the pathway with which I continued on. Uh, and so at first I was mostly hanging out with your friends uh, who are a little bit older and I could tag along to shows with. Uh, but as, you know, I started to meet these guys and uh, some other folks at school. Um, and in going to those shows, you know, I was, of our group of friends, one of the first people to get, you know, the Gorilla Biscuit 7-inch when it came out and side by side and sick of it all and stuff like that that... Uh, it started to influence me in that 
New York hardcore straight edge scene, uh, but then also seeing the like, yeah, the minor threat and the seven seconds and the youth of today, the stuff that was uh, a little bit more readily available. Um, also influenced me leaning towards the, the straight edge end of things and then uh, was getting really into conflict and bands like that that uh, also influenced me in the vegetarianism and environmental issues and human rights and things like that that in my mind it all kind of went together uh, yeah. and uh, it wasn't just the, the straight edge piece of it uh, but it was kind of it became the whole package of you know that was punk rock was opening my eyes to all of these right. injustices in the world or you know alternatives that that I never even was aware of before that uh, and then like Chris was saying um, it quickly the the rosy sheen wore off pretty quickly with the the straight edge scene that uh, I feel like there was a shift in the scene from being very like posy like seven seconds yeah. uh, to moving t more towards the violent uh, <clears throat> straight edge hardcore scene of what led into the like early 90s mid 90s uh, as the Nazi element left the scene uh, was kicked out of the scene around here in the late 80s early 90s uh, then this other violent element started to take hold maybe the kickboxers kickboxers and, yeah. Yeah. yeah kickboxers and DMS like the gangs that were infiltrating the hardcore scene stuff like that that uh, I just didn't want anything to do with that like that was what I was experiencing in high school was the the jocks and the assholes who were like fucking with me because I was weird looking and quiet and not cool uh, <clears throat> that yeah I didn't want that in my precious punk rock scene uh, and then we kind of started to gravitate towards this other new DIY scene that uh, that we started to discover I think a lot of it I think a lot of it comes I think it's interesting when you think about growing up we grew up in the 80s you know like we came yeah. into our like political awareness and you know whatever in the 80s and in the suburbs and it was a time of you know really significant you know materialism and um a monoculture that was very materialistic and um the music and all that stuff you know every generation is going to kind of rebel against what they're <laughs> there's going to be some portion of the generation that's going to rebel against what's there and i think for us you know, we were kids that were part of whatever that group is, that ageless thing of like, I'm 16, you know, I'm becoming aware of stuff and, you know, I care about things and I want things to be different. And that was like an outlet for us, you know, just like my dad playing rock and roll in the 50s or, you know, countercultural people in the 60s and you know it's just, so I've worked I've worked in higher ed for 15 years now and so I'm like constantly around 20 year olds and it's fascinating to see like you know as things change like the stuff's still there like you know the kids today it's like they've grown up in this technical world that we never did you know they're kids of the 2000s and they grew up with the internet and all this stuff. And what are they? What are they doing while well, they're into acoustic music and 
doing stuff by hand and getting into artisanal things and all this stuff, which is great because they're reacting against the culture that was put on them or that they became a part of. And there's just as many kids today as there were back then that want something different or are interested in something different or go out and do stuff. And I think that's, and like Bull said, I think that the straight edge stuff was part of it. It was part of this bigger kind of political, personal politic thing. And then I think the DC scene is really what had the most lasting influence on us. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, we kind of came into it and straight edge was popular in New Jersey and we kind of went on that. But at the same time, you know, we're listening to Minor Threat and all that stuff, but then we're listening to all the other Discord bands and we're listening to Embrace and the first Fugazi album and all this stuff that, that came out. And that's what I think was like, oh yeah, this is... Mm -hmm this is where we're at. Like yeah. we still believe in the, the political message and the personal politics and the kind of, you know, importance of your behavior, personal behavior and stuff that I think really drove that scene. But then being more accepting, being, being more ex musically adventurous, so I think that's like yeah. that had a, that had a huge influence. That's very true. It took us a while to get to, to get play when we play it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's move back a little bit before we get into that properly, uh, because we still have, matter of fact, kind of a different band than what ultimately uh, Policy Three is. So yeah. uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what what matter of fact was like? You know, where you were playing, who you were playing with, what you know, what were you saying with the band? Like, were you writing the lyrics? Yeah, I think I wrote some. Chris, I think you wrote yeah, some too, some, right? Yeah, I guess I wrote some of the first songs, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a mix of, of the two of us, I think, for lyric-wise. And, um, you know, I, I, gosh, Stop the Madness. That was... Uh, <laughs> for the record, I didn't write any of the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we talk about Stop the Madness? That was a popular... I mean, what was the... What, what madness were you stopping? So I guess since I wrote this, I wrote this lyrics, I guess I should talk about that. I mean, most of the, the topics are basically what you'd expect, yeah. expect from that time period and now, yeah. right? It's things like that. Yeah, animal rights. No, it, it is what it is. Um, and yeah. I don't want to go back to them, but they're simplistic. But again, it's like the best I could what I knew and stuff and that's well, you're, at least you're putting this, something positive exactly, out there right? yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. bitches in cars or some bullshit like that I wrote that lyrics really... to a song that a lot of people want to do and they never did so but I mean it, it, it kind of was that it was you know yeah. what you kind of would expect from that time period yeah. but um, but again it was like kind of there was never any lyrics about you know we're all into this together we're going to go fight the you know the typical kind of straight edge type songs where it's like I don't know. I'm trying to like think of good example. fighting anthems or something. That's yeah, something like you know, it was it was more like general type, maybe political type stuff or you know, yeah, it was like that. Cool. It yeah. wasn't more. No songs about being stabbed in the back. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't like stabbed in the back or yeah. friendships and you stuff. It was, it, was, it was different than that, I'm glad to say. There was the environmental song, there was the animal rights song. Yeah, there was all yeah, the, there was probably, was there an anti-apartheid song? No one of that. Yeah, I don't, yeah, no, you love apartheid. So <laughs> I think I wrote that in my other band. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we had an anti-apartheid song. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was kind of like, you, you're, as you're, you're discovering stuff, so obviously you're going to start, it's this top, you, you start like, well, I'm gonna, if we're going to write a song, it's, it's going to be about this because this is what I care about now and stuff right. like that. It just kind of evolved that way. Right. I mean, it was kind of, I think anyone that had a band in that time period or any, or any of us at, you know, our age right now who got into the, 
the music around the same time, probably have the same type of stories. It was kind of everyone kind of starts out the same type of way, pretty much, you know. And I think Something. it's also I, I think what's interesting about maybe influences us a little bit is the fact that we were from you know South Jersey, basically yeah. ten minutes from Philly, and there wasn't really any big Philly band at the time, like kind of a national type band. And we were between DC and New York, so like those two scenes just kind of really influenced us, and I think that's what you know. It was that mixture there, so we got the aspects of, you know, New York City hardcore scene. We also got aspects of the Washington D.C. scene, and there was no overriding like theme or, you know, sound or anything like that in Philly, really. You know, and um, I think that's how we, you know, that's we were a melting pot. Yeah, we were like kind of turkey. <laughs> you know, well, talk, things, talk. Oh, go go ahead, and then. Uh, so we started playing in '89, and. I feel like we were really lucky in that where we were geographically, like being close to Philly in South Jersey, or not even necessarily that it was close to Philly, but uh, just where we happened to be in South Jersey, uh, this huge scene developed uh, yeah. around, you know, a few crappy bands. Uh, but crappy us, bands? Okay, okay. Uh, matter of fact, Point of View, who was sort of like our sister band, uh, so we had very similar names. Uh, the uh, Orgasmic Toilet Band, my brother's fine band. Uh, <laughs> yeah. ATI. ATI, the Crazy <laughs> Rubber, Rubber Chickens, chickens. <laughs> uh, and maybe one or two others. You could uh, override. You could override was, they were ahead of their time. Uh, <laughs> but we, yeah, it was like every weekend we played somebody's house party or yeah. pool party, uh, birthday party, whatever. And then we started doing shows at the Harwin Theater, the movie theater in Mount Ephraim, New Jersey. Uh, and, you know, like a hundred kids would come to every one of these house shows or uh, movie theater shows at the Harwin. It was awesome. We're I mean, it was sure. the exact same bands every single weekend, <laughs> yeah. the exact same people every single weekend, but it never got old. And it was yeah. like super fun, super yeah. posy. Uh, they didn't have the internet to distract them, so everybody yeah. actually <laughs> physically do something instead yeah. of sitting there hunched yeah. over typing. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Though. Yeah, it's like amazing how people even you know people had to like see each other at the mall or call each other on the phone to like even find out about oh there's a show at so and so's house. You yeah, know, yeah. Many people <laughs> would show up. But matter of fact, ultimately becomes policy of three. What what is this change and how do you lose one member and gain another one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, were... so matter of fact, we were still matter of fact when yeah, we joined. Was... Yeah. yeah. We Rich, we had. Um, I think Rich, maybe he was going in a different direction. Maybe friendship there wasn't as strong as it once did was. He stab and... you in the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did, did write a few songs. <laughs> no. um, and uh, yeah, I... musically, it was mostly musically that we sort of had we're going in different directions and yeah. uh we decided to look for a new guitarist yeah that's where adam came in yeah so i knew i knew joe first is that true yeah because yeah, we were because i was friends with jamie oh yeah and we knew some people some people that dookie joe dookie joe and <laughs> dookie uh, joe who was dookie joe i don't remember dookie joe, <laughs> you remember dookie joe? No. he wore um, two different color converse come on yeah. how can you forget and um, then, um geez. and then i kind of so then i kind of met i knew bull a little bit just from around and then 
You saw the flyer on South yeah. Street, no. didn't you? Well, yeah, there was but a flyer. But it was also Herschel. You guys knew Herschel from working, because he worked at the comic book store. In the mall, yeah. And he knew you guys were looking for a guitarist. And it was kind of like, I made the association between the flyer and oh, Herschel okay. knew you guys. And I had just finished playing with like, this other band. It was kind of like, we lost our drummer or something like that. So yeah, so then I just showed up and... Um, I seem to remember. I couldn't really play any of the songs because I can't, I can't play that style of guitar. Like I can't <laughs> play chugga chugga like yeah. hardcore guitar. And like we started writing, Jeff and I like Jeff started playing guitar, and we just started writing different songs. And it was like musically, it just we started to change slowly. We still played the old songs, but yeah. like we wrote the hand, the hand, <laughs> the stuff that was on our on the matter of fact demo tape yeah. that eventually came out, which was. Definitely moving into I wasn't more playing of guitar the DC then right away, though, was I? I don't think I was. Because I think... No. Um, yeah. It started when... Uh, when I didn't want to sing anymore. What's his name? Started Dan Farrow. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. I yeah. I decided I didn't want to sing. I just wanted to play guitar. So let's go back to that flyer for a second, though. Yeah. One of our, <coughs> a good, one of our good friends, uh, John Q. Public, he um, did this flyer. embarrassing. <laughs> he got a lot of stuff for that for years. Chris Pride might have been involved in that, too. Uh, <laughs> We made a flyer. That <laughs> See, I don't remember. That. I remember like I remember like talking to Herschel about it and like getting. I got like your number. Like, no one, you gave your number to Herschel. No one got him. the. No one got the irony of the humor of the flyer. But maybe it's so much to explain yeah, what yeah, the, yeah. It's, it's, it's on it. This is like my influenced my life here. So we made this flyer. <laughs> For some reason, Chris Fry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Chris's handwriting was used for the flyer uh, that we then photocopied and put up around South Street, uh, punk rock mecca at the time. Uh, that basically said, you know, New Jersey punk hardcore band looking for uh, a guitarist, and it named some of our influences, you know, like Instead and Chain of Strength or whatever. And, uh, Fans, we sounded nothing like. Uh, <laughs> and then at the bottom it said, uh, no racist. <laughs> no racist. Spelled wrong. <laughs> Crossed out with a single X. <laughs> One of my great strengths in school was I was a great speller, except for that moment of... of uh... But there are already so many words on that page that we couldn't rewrite at all. But uh, there was no, there's just it, this white out. Everyone helped me like write. It wasn't like I just wrote it and no one else, everyone. Yeah. But then we would have had to mimeograph all of those flyers again before we put them up on South Street. But I remember Adam saying at some point that he saw That's that flyer, flyer. laughed at it. And then realized it was people that he knew. <laughs> I don't remember that. I feel like I would remember that. I do I still have the flyer somewhere. Yeah. Hmm. It's not here huh. in this pile? I don't but I remember, so. I remember, yeah, I remember going to Chris's house and, uh, and, um, I yeah, that. and I was like, I was definitely like playing a different style and I wasn't sure, like, yeah. We didn't really know each other that well and stuff and I wasn't sure, like, I really wanted to do it. I wasn't sure how you guys thought about it but you know we became i don't really remember i remember just sticking around and showing up for practice i, th I think you're probably even the only person that called us so i don't think we had a choice yeah <laughs> <laughs> all the races were like oh, yeah. want me. and you could also play guitar better than any of us could play our instruments yeah which i think yeah. was a bonus at yeah. that point but yeah we wrote that wrote the first song that i wrote with you guys playing with an open e Drone string, which like became a 
a theme. A signature thing for us <laughs> to like, you know, and like, yeah, I think that like first song that we wrote together started changing the, the sound yeah. of the stuff that we were doing. Yeah, definitely. And then a little bit down the line, uh, yeah, Jeff was tired of singing, started playing guitar. This guy Dan Farrow played, sang for us for a little while. Yeah. Uh, he was real weird. <laughs> Our band became real weird for a while. <laughs> weird, like, weird like what? Like what was a weird he, like he was? He was very grunge influenced in his vocal stylings. I would say. And, his, or, and was sort of like an interpretive dancer at the show. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but our music stayed the same. Yeah, it definitely made me uncomfortable, though. Yeah, uh, I think it made all of us uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, so that was a that, five piece then. That was a, yeah, yeah for yeah, a very short piece. while. Yeah, just a few yeah. months. Yeah. And that yeah, was. I felt, a like, few shows. I felt like I. I don't know. I. 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 I think I was tired of like doing what I was doing, screaming and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, th I just felt kind of burned out with it for some reason. Um, and I didn't, I didn't feel like I was a, a good singer, um, and I couldn't sing and, and, um, plus you got good at guitar really fast. Yeah. It didn't That's take, true. it didn't yeah. take Jeff long to get better. It didn't take long for <laughs> Jeff to get better than me. And <laughs> Whatever. He had been playing significantly less time than I had. <laughs> I got, I fell in love with playing guitar. You know, I mean, and, and for me it was like, um, this is what I want to do. I just want to, I want to play guitar. I would sit in my room and play records hours and hours and hours on end. Um, That's probably why you're better than me. Drive Like Jehu was uh, a mm. huge one for me. But yeah, Moses. so yeah, that's, I don't know. How long was Dan in the band? It was only a few it was months. Brief, yeah. right? We only played a couple shows. Spring, like so Dan, uh, yeah, yeah. So Dan, he, I was, I was, remember um, I played with Sean. Sean and, and Dion. Dion played drums. Dion Pacey. Mm -hmm. I know um, Dion. Of your game. Sean Bauman of um, Toadstool fame. fame. Uh, he <laughs> <laughs> Everyone listening was going to know yeah. what that is, so it doesn't even be big. And Nuclear no. Override. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he played guitar. I played guitar as well. And Dan Farrow sang in, in that band. What was that called? Uh, our band was called Brainspit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was fabulous. I forgot about that. Fabulous I forgot thing. that too. Yeah, <laughs> I I thought that was still Toadstool. I forgot that. It, but did Herschel played bass. Me. Herschel played bass. Did he? Yeah, huh. yeah. Herschel played bass. So Herschel we were we were really super happy band. In his yeah. Is what we <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, his name's popping up everywhere. So he's just, um, he's still the one who's uh, working musician. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so Dan was in the band for just a few months. Yeah. yeah. Once he left, which I believe was like the very end of '92. He he elected to leave, or he was. He kind of just disappeared. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it was we earlier than that. Yeah, it was our. Was he, it? Uh, we had a show um, towards the end of. What was the date? It was a Trenton State College show. It was towards the end of the, the spring semester. We played with Into Another. No, right, because I was at Trenton State that year. Oh, that was, that was yeah, my freshman year. It was probably like in April or, or May right. of Trenton State College towards the end of the semester of 92. And uh, ah. we had a show, and Dan didn't show up. So we were all at the show, and he never showed up. And at that point, we realized that this isn't going to work. So yeah. I forget how it worked out. If I think it just was kind of this mutual thing where everyone was kind of like, yeah, he okay. realized he probably wasn't into it, and we weren't that into you know, it just didn't work. And yeah. it just kind of... The four of us just, you know, decided to, you know, I think, obviously we're going to continue doing it and stuff. And I guess whatever, you know, I don't remember exactly what um happened, but I just remember sometime in like that period between when Dan left in the summer, I guess like a month or two, 
is like we completely changed our like the, the approach of the band and everything became completely different. Like yeah. We did a demo and it was like three or four songs, which became our seven inch, I think. Yeah. And yeah, uh, they did. I think we just, I think it was the first time where we really got it as a band. I think the songs were like, at the time, the best songs we, we did as a, for us. Yeah, we and decided. And it just seemed that. like the most natural thing we did. It, it just fit us, I think, yeah. the best. Yeah. At least we me went personally. To two guitar, two singer. Two singer. Just, yeah. I think. I was, you know, style. Most yeah. and it just took yeah. off from there, I think. And also at the time, things everywhere, you know, in the area, it seemed like the scene itself at that time was starting to really take off. So everything kind of happened at once. And uh, we got lucky at the time because then shows became much more easier to come by and everything just, you know, steamrolled from there and just, you know, fell into place. And Then we changed our name. Yeah. yeah. But at so the same time, yeah. That, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's summer. Summer 92, right? Yep. And then we recorded that. Winter. What? Uh, <laughs> March '93, I believe. Who came up with the idea of the band name policy of three? And could you define what? That I did. Is? I think Adam did. Yeah. In the Camden County Library. Oh, Very good. good job. Yeah. I used to work there. Yeah. yeah. Camden County Library. I think we Props. all have. We got beat up by skinheads there. after a <laughs> visit but, to the um, book sale there. <laughs> I was in college for uh, political science, and I was doing some research and. Um, was reading about time period leading up to the Chinese Revolution and you know there was um, you know there was discussion about this farmers movement um, where farmers that were still kind of under the feudal system had figured out ways to use uh, nonviolent methods um, to kind of make have a political impact and um, and uh, there was these pamphlets or tracks or something I don't I mean I read it in this book like one time but it was like these pamphlets or tracks that were written by the and they tried they kept themselves anonymous um, but they referred they called it the policy of three mm -hmm. um, you know as, as, yeah and it was. We were looking for a new name. We were definitely influenced by the, I guess, what then would have been the early stages of the emo scene or whatever we, not that we defined it as such at the time, but. Um, yeah, that's something I want to talk about is, is, is emo uh, for folks who maybe have a very different concept of that. But uh, quickly, did, did you consistently use the numeral or the spelling out or did you kind of bounce between the two? I think we bounced between the two. I think the first patch we had, it was spelled out. But do you remember the first? I remember that we had the lizard patch, and I think it said yep. policy three with the word three. So mm -hmm. we didn't have it because I don't because and there are other. Yeah, we never kept it consistent. It yeah. was both. Do, do any yeah. do you have a feeling of what you feel is the the, the superior version of? I mean, should it be? I do. What <laughs> I like the number. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean the number is what like we went number. with on most all of the records. Uh, yeah. But yeah, sometimes it would be spelled out. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about emo. Uh, emo, as people, some people understand it today, although it's not much of a musical genre in in the end of 2013 as it was a few years ago. But it's taken on a completely different meaning. Um, emo derived from emotional hardcore, as some people perceive it now, is like 
girly boys with elf haircuts and makeup. You know, <laughs> elf haircuts. Yeah, you know, singing about what? That was that, that was because they were all friend, fans of Chris. Yeah. <laughs> but but then you know the emo as as in emotional hardcore was, was clearly a completely different, different thing, yeah. uh, and it is always kind of really painful for me to hear someone refer to a band as being emo when I think, oh god, that has nothing <laughs> to fuck it. But why can't you call it anything, anything other else. than that? Yeah, because it winds up painting this horrible brushstrokes over bands who play totally different music who were great compared to like you know the guy with running mascara peeing his pants or something <laughs> but, um, so could you define you know whoever well, uh, like what what it, what was emo and and how was this it, thing it like different from it, yeah, that, yeah i mean it wasn't just it. We, we didn't call it we were i mean if you if someone said to anything else it was like well yeah we're kind of into the I mean, it definitely came from the DC scene, but then it propped up all over the country. It was just yeah. kind of like, yeah, it was just a DIY were, thing that we were I mean, doing. I think too, kind of like what you had said earlier about when we first started playing, how we wanted to, you know, we, we, you had a vision of us being like, you know, judge or something, right? Yeah, um, totally. I think we were always kind of like that though. We always were playing what we felt was the music in our hearts, but it was never really the music that fit into this peg you know we just sort of were kind of always doing our own thing um and i don't i don't think we ever well i know we never said hey we're an emo band from south yeah. jersey did, you know? do you feel I mean, that you, like we, that, that we were part you of shouldn't have been now. lumped yeah. into that though yeah. i mean do you feel that you were separate from it and and that that worked to your disadvantage that, that generally you would be at the time or even now considered to be part of this this emo thing of the 90s i mean i think it made sense that we got lumped in with that yeah. uh i think we were resistant to it at the time. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Were we though? But like, I don't know. I felt a little resistant to it because I felt like it was a label that was put on us. That I don't remember uh, the label that early on. I felt like it came much later that people started talking about emo bands. Well, I think, I think like, it started to in like bands like Antioch Arrow. Yeah, yeah. Like once up. we started mm. touring, I feel like that was becoming yeah. a more. When the politics uh, left it, yeah. you know, like I think that us and the, the bands that were really influenced like our peers you know like yeah. we started doing this stuff and then there was you know bands in the bay area there was bands in san diego and you know well, even all, all the jersey bands all the jersey Native bands Nod, that, iconoclast yeah merrill yeah, merrill gray house yeah like there was yeah there was just we were kind of all coming to it at the same time and kind of feeding off of each other and but for us there was always a political component we always consider ourselves punk in that way, I think. You know, our lyrics, our personal politics, the aesthetics of the band, what we sang about, the way we tried to do our stuff, like, I think we were, we always felt that way. I think that, you know, I guess the only, yeah, the only issue with the emo label was later on when it became, um, when there were bands and other things that, we're doing something a little different. Maybe the music was similar, but they were, you know, they didn't have that political component. I think it's a key element that you bring up because it's, it's often a criticism of, of emo, and it was certainly mine at the time, that it, it had the politics and the anger of punk removed from it, and it was kind of replaced with purely with style and with fashion. Not for all the bands, but right, for yeah. kind of like right. the worst of the bands were without substance. They were too yeah. navel-gazing. Uh, I and, think that was also... I think a lot of the West Coast bands had uh, maybe more notoriety, uh, and I think like 
it often is. You know, the east and west coast has some some differences, and uh, I think like the Philly, Jersey, New York area bands that we were like closer with uh, were more similar, more closely aligned <coughs> politically to us than like some of the bands, west coast bands that were more apolitical. Uh, they maybe came a little bit before us, like Heroin, Antioch, Arrow, uh, and then like Indian Summer bands like that that like weren't as uh, as political. But you can drive like Jehu, which were a, f- yeah. a huge musical influence, but like yeah, you know, yeah, I think like politically and stuff like that, like you know, they didn't they didn't really speak to us in that way. Yeah, yeah, you know, they were like yeah. a. I mean, I, I mean. They were more of a we want to play music and create music. Yeah, because there like was bands that we were. I mean, there was bands know? we were listening to a lot. I mean, we listened yeah. to Neurosis a lot. Yeah. We, you know, I know you like Slint a lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I was, you know, I was listening. I was still listening, or you know, listening to a lot of new wave and different things. So, and um, but I, I think that you know, for ourselves, that I mean, you, I mean, the, you look at. I don't think we ever really wrote a song that didn't have a political component in one way or another. You know, some of them were personal and stuff like that, but they were still about something. You know, they weren't inward looking. They might have been looking inward at something that's outward. But, um, and I, so I think that was, that was kind of key. And I think, yeah, and I think a lot of the bands that we, we felt connected to. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think personally a lot of that whole emo scene that, the bands everyone's just talked about, I think, come from that same place that we do. I think that that early '90s, where you know the music was getting really like sort of violent and macho, and like everyone was still really into the idea of hardcore punk and you know everything that went along with it, but they didn't like what was happening. And I think you look at the, that early, you know, the early '90s. The music's still aggressive, it's still loud, it's still noisy, but it's not. It's kind of like, how can I express myself? How can I still be angry and express myself and not in a different way? And I yeah. think that's really what I think a lot of the bands at the time have in common. I think that's what I feel like. I think what we kind of did were we still wanted to be loud. We still wanted to have that same aggression, but we didn't want to. We wanted to do something, do it differently than what because we were unhappy with how it was going on at the time, and we wanted to get away from that and. I think that's what we did, and I think that's probably what a lot of other bands did, I think. Yeah, I think that's kind of where the the emo scene kind of was birthed out of that. The Riot Girl scene was kind of birthed out of that, and the beginnings of, like, the queercore scene were all were all kind of reactions to that, the prevalence of that yeah. uh, think, macho and uh, mm-hmm. violence and such. Yeah, you, was, you can look back now and say, you can laugh at it, well, look, you know, everyone wore, you know, you can look at the, laugh at the clothes or the zines and all that type of stuff, but... You know, it really was like a t- every important for everybody. It was a big. It was kind of like a a big like fuck you basically to all the stuff that was happening at the time. Like you know, and it, it was kind of like a reaction to that. Right, we're going to do it this way now, and that's what happened. And I think like all those all that type of stuff. That, um, I think it was a reaction to all that kind of violence and kickboxing here in Jersey and stuff like that that we hated, and a lot of people hated it too. I think all of that branching off really served to uh, define 90s hardcore as something different than what came before it. I mean, it still had the elements moving through it of things that came through the 80s, but rather than just being kind of like an endless continuation of kids doing what people were doing before, it, it made it something new and innovative. And I think that that 
was kind of a really crucial thing to to show that the scene was still vital and it was capable yeah. of moving forward yeah. in different directions rather than saying that everybody was going to operate in the template that was established by 1982 10 years later uh, and I think I mean I think what you guys did and what other bands like you know both as the queer core bands and the Riker events and all that okay. like by defining themselves in different ways and doing different types of music it winds up making something new and vital rather than just a regurgitation repeat. of yeah repeat of what came and, before. and I think we can't discount the other stuff that was going on in the culture at the time too is like you know grunge and nirvana and all those things were blowing up as well yeah. and like you know we were going from playing a minute and a half hardcore songs to playing six minute you know songs with you know improv components and you know um you know, different kind sampling. of sampling and sound things going on that, like, um, you know, there was something there too. You know, whereas, you know, you had bands like Sonic Youth and um, the Seattle bands and stuff like that that were having a big cultural impact, and we weren't, you know, following that exactly, but we were definitely influenced, yeah, influenced by, by, it. by that. And I think, sure. all, I mean, I think just in general, the, the, the the hardcore and punk scene at that time was was influenced by it too. What about my or, bloody or they were influencing that scene? I mean, it kind of goes both ways. Did you feel that my bloody Valentine was in any way uh, something that was you know? I never. I didn't listen to him at the time. Yeah, yeah me neither. Which is interesting. Like uh, now, like, uh, another thing that I think influenced that scene at that time, uh, outside of the music, was this bringing all these other components into punk, uh, like the whole DIY ethic piece that, um, you know, we, our friends were putting out our records, starting these small labels, uh, which, you know, there were labels like Discord or Lookout Records, uh, a handful of other ones uh, before that, you know, Revelation at the time was still a small label in the scheme of things. But, uh, you know, we were, sta we were starting to do that on an even smaller scale, uh, People were putting out zines in a volume that had never existed before. There were, you know, we were starting to do spoken word shows. We were setting up distros at shows. We were making food to have at shows. Yeah, I guess you know, it's crucial to mention that, like, all four of you were involved with Cabbage Collective to one degree or another, which was doing the events, you know, yeah. sometimes that you played or, or, you know, with your contemporaries or with other... Yeah, right. so, like, all of these aspects, we were trying to create an alternative, not just create a different style of music or, you know, music with more meaningful lyrics to us or things like that. There was all these other pieces of it too, like the means of production, you know, doing that ourselves, uh, setting up our our tours on a really small scale with other small promoters, similar to what we were doing here in Philly. Uh, yeah, our friends were making zines, we were printing our own shirts, we were making patches, we were printing our own record covers, all this, all this stuff that was fairly new. Uh, at that time within that scene yeah yeah and i think we were and and i think that the connections to you know like i lived in new brunswick going to school for a lot of this and you know living in group house with nine or ten other people you know none of whom were in bands but all of whom were doing something related to the scene you know, working in activist groups or, you know, putting on shows or, you know, yeah, mostly 
people being involved in, in, in the politics stuff and really working in activist things and um, you know and that's you know the connection out here with the Cabbage Collective and and all that too there was a broader music was just a small part it was it was a, it was a social and kind of cohesive part of a much bigger thing that was going on um, well, I want to talk for a second about uh, politics and social issues because I think that's something that, that I like to have in the interviews and I think were really crucial to the time. So in the time that the, the band was functioning, uh, what were the, the issues that, that you four, either as individuals or as a group, were of the most uh, concern to you or the, and the people around you? So... <laughs> I'm thinking... Um, I mean, I think we all got into vegetarianism, but I don't yeah. think it wasn't. We never really had that in our songs. It wasn't like we just did it. Yeah, we didn't really talk I about. Was, it. I think it was part of a general, a general, you know, um, notion towards justice and peace, and you know how that ties in with environmentalism and how animals and people are treated, anti-violence. All those things. I mean, anti-violence is a big part. If you look at our songs, you know, they're again, you know, there's songs about <coughs> violence against women, violence against, you know, underprivileged people. Um, you know, I think there was that was a big theme. Yeah. And I think that that's yeah. I mean, we tried to. And that, that was most of the people we were friends with or involved with were in some way or another working again, working towards some sort of promotion of peace in one capacity or another, whether it was towards the earth or towards individuals or, you know, things like food, not bombs and books through bars and um, positive force and, you know, all these different things that our friends were involved in act up yeah you know. yeah and our lyrics weren't always they weren't so overt yeah uh, right yeah, overt. But, that, but that's what they were yeah that was the underlying stuff yeah but at the same time you know we would have information about veganism or uh you know a women's shelter or playing a benefit for uh an organization that we cared about uh things like that you know we'd always have information on our table where we had our seven inches or t-shirts or whatever uh we played a lot of fundraisers benefits yeah. things like that uh that that I feel like was more of our voice than necessarily directly in our lyrics. It yeah. was, you know, it was our actions and it was our, uh, you know, the information that we put out there or, or, you know, put out there for people to take if they chose to. Let's talk a little bit about uh, touring. Uh, started off, did you start off with a U.S. tour or how, how did the, the, the touring begin? And, you know, for, for some people who don't really know, the process of booking a tour in a pre-internet age is certainly that problematic. Uh, that was all bull. Uh, now, yeah. for, for the listener, Bull has a series of sheets of paper with little numbers and scribbles <laughs> and lines crossed out and blobs. We, uh, we did our first phenomenally successful tour in the summer of 1993. Uh, full I think U.S. tour. Full U.S. tour. It was 37 days, which... We intended to play every day. In the end, we wound up playing 21 shows. Pretty good. Uh, More than 50 was it was that because yeah. of a lot of cancellations, or did you? Yeah, it was that? a it was kind of a fucking mess. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was great. I absolutely loved that tour, oh, yeah. but Jesus Christ, like 
uh, I had no fucking idea what I was doing. If you would have asked me, I would have thought it was less than 21 shows. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I was going to maybe 15. Uh, I, I checked that That's at some point. more than point. every other day. That's pretty yeah. good. That's true. But to go from, you know, Philadelphia we did through the south, back through the north. We did like 10,000 miles in a 1976. 35. 75. <laughs> Ford Econoline 100 short bed. No windows. Cargo van. Was this the Finch? No windows. The Finch. The Finch. Finch. Why, why was it the Finch? Because it was gold. Oh, okay. New Jersey State first. Chris, Chris <laughs> gave it the name. The Finch. Very good. The heat had to be on in the desert because we didn't want to overheat the uh, engine. We were so driving with the sliding the door open. <laughs> 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 Jeff was in the back. It was dying. Yeah. Oh, there was that gray sludge that came out of the engine when we well, were in the desert. That was when it died eventually. Yeah. Uh, but just as a little like the headlights wouldn't stay on all the time. Yeah, at, so mostly be, at night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it through driving through the desert, desert, and all of a sudden the highway what? completely disappeared. <laughs> and then Jeff or somebody would, I would be driving, they would have to come underneath the dashboard and jiggle the switch, <laughs> and I'd be like trying not to swerve off the road. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? See, part? I don't mind my kids hearing this part, but they're not allowed to do that. No, <laughs> I can't believe my parents ever let me sign off on that. Uh, some of the financial highlights of the tour was. Uh, so there were stretches of time where there were no shows, but uh, this one here, let's see, we'll start with, uh, I don't, oh god, we played three shows at the Shea Cafe in San Diego because pretty much an entire week's worth of shows fell through. Yeah. <laughs> so you were the in-house band. Yes. You were the in-house yeah, residency. Band, which we yeah. got to play with Tit Wrench though, so. And we got free burritos that were really good. Oh, they yeah. were so good. Yeah. Glad you um, remember that, the 20-something years later. Yeah. <laughs> But, we also got a parking ticket at the, at the Shea Cafe, and uh, I never wanted to pay it. My mom got so upset and nervous that she felt that I was going to get arrested. She ended up paying a $250 parking ticket for <laughs> two years. Was the van in my name? I think it was in my name because it was registered in my house. Uh, huh. Oh, man. It was definitely mine for a while. So uh, there was a stretch of time. I'll start with L.A. Uh, I wrote down what we got paid each night. L.A., early show, $15. <laughs> Late show, $20. So that's $35 for the day. Not, not bad. bad. Hey, these not were bad. early 90s money. That's like, like, like $800. <laughs> uh, next one, Shea Cafe, nothing. Uh, then L.A., $11. Gilman Street, we didn't play. Uh, next up, Sacramento, $15. Uh, another Sacramento show, $10. Oh. Utah, Utah, forty dollars. We were rolling in the cash. <laughs> Utah, <baby>. pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Minneapolis, forty-five. Madison, twelve dollars. Milwaukee, here it comes, eight dollars and twenty cents. Hey man, this is all we got. That's cool. It's gas money, dude. I the guy, the person who did the show, but I remember him giving each got a nickel. And I remember him saying like, "That pile of money has some change here. We'll take it." Put a handful of like papers and have two dimes and some lint. The funny thing is, is I don't really remember us losing money. Like we didn't lose a lot of money doing this. Like somehow we made it work. And it was fucking fun. It was yeah. great. Like, we were 19 was, or whatever. And, yeah. Yeah. I was 19, so was you guys 20. were like 20, 21. Yeah. Uh, that was our first tour. We played with a lot of really great bands can you, on do you all remember, of these shitty shows. Can you remember some of the bands that you were playing uh, with? Undertow, Spark Marker, Groundwork. Uh, Suicidey? Suicidey we played with on both tours in Dallas-Fort Worth. They were fucking awesome. Uh... We played with another band in that Dallas band? that was, uh, I can't remember what they were called. Hellbender? We played with Hellbender, Chisel. Uh, we played with 
Suicide and Indian Summer on the the following. Sorry, following. No, I was thinking. I was thinking of a different uh, show. Initial a State show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the uh, that was the band with the folks from. Ah, uh, oh, shit! I can't remember what they're called. The did we play with band? the Yamos yeah. that tour? Uh, starts with an A. I think we did. Uh, no, nope. nah, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, it's Ant Schism. Any Schism. Yeah. Yeah. They're banned after Any Schism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they were really great. Did we play with the Amos that tour? I can't remember if it was that one or the next year. But they, they had to come out. Yeah, because I remember being... I like hearing you all say that it was really fun to do because uh, oh, awesome. sometimes I think people forget when they're talking about all this stuff like it's a fucking blast you're touring oh, the yeah. country as young people you know seeing all kinds of shit yeah are you uh, um, I gotta go to bed okay alright I'll, I'll pause it sorry yeah uh, we're back not that anybody noticed everybody has urinated and eaten some tasty crackers <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's yeah. go forward um first US tour clearly millionaires by the end we had a clearly. lot of Taco Bell yeah. Yes, we did a lot of bean tacos. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, first tour was. Do you want to talk about the politics of that at all, Bull? Talk Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was before there was a. It was not without protest. guilt though that we ate it. <laughs> What's that? It was not without guilt that we ate it. We definitely like debated it on the tour, but but. <laughs> when we were getting paid eight dollars and twenty cents a show, <laughs> a forty-nine cent bean burrito <laughs> in the middle of you know some highland of Texas in, in yeah. North Dakota or something like that is yeah. yeah I think vegetarian and vegan options at the time were probably not abundant Way so limited yeah. it was yeah. also before tostadas we had a lot of tostadas <laughs> that's yeah. true yes it was before I discovered the wonder of the avocado which made life on tour post policy of three much much better and hummus the ubiquitous yeah hummus hummus <laughs> yeah there was no hummus in yeah, and, uh, I remember eating eating nope. cold cans of vegetarian chili. Yeah, mm. Mm. I remember getting anytime we found a health food store, buying a pound of granola. <laughs> it was the most calorie dense, cheapest thing that we could do. And we had a uh, a Coleman like water jug thing that you know, like that you would bring to a soccer game or whatever for like the kids. You In nineteen eighty. Yeah, and then we would like take the top off, put a pound or like a half pound of granola and like a half a thing of soy milk in there, and just like, eat the whole thing. It's like probably like a thousand calories, but that would be like a way that we could get a thousand calories for like two bucks. Yeah. And then we would leave it in the van for a day, and we'd open it up, and it would be perfectly, uh, you know, spoiled. And we'd have to hose it out and do it again. All right, so after the first U.S. tour, uh, what happens? Shit started coming together. Uh, did it really? Yeah. No. <laughs> we did the first. So we did the first U.S. tour on a seven-inch, uh, yeah. our first seven-inch, uh, which we probably sold for two dollars. Uh, what was the title yeah. of the seven-inch? Does it have a title? Uh, it is untitled. <laughs> it has songs on it. Uh, and then, yeah, I feel like that was really when shit started to happen for us. Uh, we recorded our LP. We I'll, I'll say that I don't mean to interrupt, but I believe that people refer to it as the Policy of Three Shelf LP mm. or a shelf uh, EP. I think you're right. Yeah. For seven inch. Yeah. And right. this was released on what label? <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's a pubic hair caught in my throat. But uh, what what label was that on? Uh, Bloodlink Records. Huh. Press, no, press any by uh, Scott Jersey. Still in print. I uh, hear. <laughs> Uh, the discography. Yeah. <laughs> so, All right, you can skip over that if you want. Uh, yeah. 
So these certain things things are coming together. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like that was when things really started to. We were playing a lot more. Uh, Doing we, a lot of weekend stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe driving down to Richmond, Virginia, or up like into New England. Yeah. And that was also so during the time between our first U.S. tour in the summer of '93 uh, and our second one, the summer of '94. We during one of these weekend shows we met and played with Shotmaker uh, at a show from at, Ottawa in Amherst. Yeah. What was the date, Chris? I don't, I don't know. It was, it was uh, winter. Oh, man. So yeah. we did. Yeah, that's right. We did a. So I was on. I did on a college break. So we did a winter tour. Was that in, in the Buick? No, well, this we was in the Finch. This was the Finch. This was the okay. final sh- tour for the Finch. We yeah. took it up and to it was New England in the winter. Fucking freezing. We played yeah. in, in Amherst. We played in Burlington, Vermont. The snowstorm. In Burlington, Vermont, we had, yeah, it was negative ten or something like that. We came out the next morning and the he- and the head had cracked on the van, <laughs> but it was so cold that we were able to drive it home at forty miles an hour <laughs> on back roads. We drove it all the way back to Jersey. Um, it took us like. 14 uh, hours or something insane and we were all in our sleeping bags there's no heat yeah <laughs> we were like all in there <laughs> anyway uh, yeah, so, so yeah, we were we, doing those kinds of things that year yeah. and we met Shotmaker one of those weekends when we played the shows uh, <clears throat> and we got to talking and me and uh, Tim from Shotmaker uh, we were talking about how we were both planning on touring that summer uh, coming up and uh I think he pitched the idea of us playing shows together, and I was hesitant because I didn't really know them, and I was unsure, based on how financially successful our last tour was, uh, whether it would be a wise idea to tour with another band, uh, neither of us being that well-known. But we wound up keeping in touch and deciding to do roughly the first half of our tour together. Uh, And man, I think it was like the best idea uh, that we ever went with. It was such a fun tour. those few weeks that we did together with them were really phenomenal. Uh, and we had a rental van. Yeah. We brought three other people with us. So instead <laughs> of just being the four of us, there were yeah. seven. Who, who all went with you? Andy Hitman, Dwayne Dixon, and Jen Langham. Yeah. And uh, they were all close friends of ours. Uh, and yeah, we toured with Shotmaker, who had one other person with them, Rory. Mm. Uh, and yeah, we just, it was a phenomenal tour uh, and a hell of a lot smoother than the first one. Uh, I think I figured out a lot of, I worked out a lot of the bugs in the first one. Uh, and we had a dialer, uh, tone dialer, one of the important... Pre-cell phones. <laughs> yeah, pre-cell phone, important uh, tool of the time. Uh, I guess, although people have explained this in other interviews, you should probably at least briefly explain what a dialer was for people uh, who... I may have to redact this based on my current employment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, now, we should say that Adam never used the aforesaid object. I, I didn't yes. know anything about this, and the fact that now I've worked in cybersecurity for <laughs> dozen years. Um, <laughs> I had no idea that there was anything wrong or this was hacker-related activity in any capacity. Absolutely uh, not. Uh, Bull, do you want to explain what, what this thing was that Adam had no idea what it was? Uh, the electronic tone dialer was a product available from Radio Shack uh, that if you had a rotary phone, this ancient dinosaur of a phone, uh, 
Which would cover payphones, too, most crucially. Well, yeah. That oh, part, oh, you're, that oh, you're getting into it. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I so the real, saying, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the real reason for The this. real reason this product was made, which seems so weird to me, uh, was that if you had a rotary phone, uh, you could use this tone dialer to press buttons rather than turning a, a round dial on your phone uh, to dial people's phone numbers. Uh, so some hacker figured out that if you replaced the crystal in uh, in the dialer, some little the piece new of age it. crystal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can channel. Had to travel to uh, Antarctica. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you replaced the crystal uh, and then programmed it a certain way, it would make the same sound at the same tone that a quarter made when you put it into a payphone. So therefore, if you programmed it in such a way with pauses in between each of these tones. It would uh, make the series of sounds that quarters would make when you deposit them into the phone to the tune of a dollar twenty-five, which was what it cost to make most uh, calls across country at the time. Uh, so I would be always on the lookout for Bell telephone uh, payphones and using them to book the tour while still in Philly, so I didn't have to pay my long-distance bill with all these uh, calls. And then while we were traveling, you know, checking in on shows was so much easier not having to like you know rely on someone you were staying with to use their phone and then pay the money for it uh, or feel bad for not paying the money for it uh, so we used this thing to book yeah pretty much our entire tour uh, saving us hundreds and hundreds of dollars yeah long distance was really expensive yeah, yeah it was expensive yeah it's something that uh, we can call back awesome. home and check into yeah we can nice. call home it was great uh, <laughs> tone dialer was a real marvel of its time uh, Right up there with Kinko's cards for free copies. Uh, <laughs> uh, the 90s. And salt, yeah. salt and uh, soda machines. Uh, uh, Adam was doing that all the time. <laughs> Adam's kids, pay though. attention to this. <laughs> this. <laughs> That's um, a joke. <laughs> so yeah, we booked the tour on the with the Tone Dialer. Uh, and again, yeah, played with a, a lot of really great bands. We had some uh, more intentional... Uh, time planned off, such as time in the Grand Canyon. Mm. Maybe somebody else wants to mention that. <laughs> Something happened in the Grand Canyon? That was just an amazing experience. We we ended up getting in the Grand Canyon. Um, you all took was, shrooms? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were portobellos. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, we, we got, we ended up there, it was, it was way, I don't know. It was the middle of the night. The middle of the night, yeah. yeah it was, you know, it was like about one o'clock in the morning. Um, and we obviously couldn't see the canyon at that point. It was, it was this massive hole. You could just you could feel it. it. Was just you black. Could, yeah, yeah you could just, you just knew that something was there. The um, line, I'm not sure if it's different now, but at that time, you could just drive in. And yeah. Park at the at edge, edge of it. Uh, yeah. There may be gates now or something, who knows, but. Yeah. We slept on top of the van that night. You could see everything in the sky. You could see satellites blinking. It was just not only anything we'd ever seen before. For Cassiopeia. <laughs> What's that? Cassiopeia. Yeah, yeah. And there was... there. Uh... Aliens? What? No aliens. No aliens. <laughs> no. We, we weren't abducted. Even though it was August, I remember yeah, it was really it was cold. Very cold, extremely cold. Yeah, cold and then we saw then we saw the sun come up. Yeah, the canyon. we could see, awesome. and that was an amazing way to see the canyon, just to see it. So you know, it was it was like watching it just emerge out of light, you know, right before us. It was um, breathtaking, unlike anything any of us. I don't know. I had never seen anything like it before. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was, it was extremely intense enough that we, as Bull's pointing out, that we wrote, wrote a, a song, song about, about it. it. <laughs> you want to hear it? 
Yeah, it was great. There was a skunk that came by too. <laughs> Is that the song? That. Uh, not mentioned in the song, but that would have been a good addition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went down the hill, one of the hills, or I don't know what hill, whatever you would call it, with uh, the guys from Shotmaker. We went down pretty far and realized, oh my god, we have to climb back up. Yeah. No water. We didn't have any water. We was I, tired I was with you like, too. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking like, oh my, we're stupid. It's <laughs> the classic, you know. You moron, tor- you know, idiot Taurus descending the Grand Canyon with absolutely no water, <laughs> no, yeah, no sunscreen, no hats, wearing <laughs> shorts. But it was really like a, I don't know, kind of life-changing moment for yeah, us, I think. Yeah. It's safe to say for everyone. Because, uh, yeah, we were still very young. Uh, and on this tour that we booked ourselves with some, like, ourselves, you know, the seven of us all really great friends and then Shopmaker are newer friends uh and seeing this like beautiful kind of breathtaking place that we'd never been to something we would have possibly never had the opportunity to do otherwise yeah. uh and you know it was all due to this band that we played it and this punk scene that we became a part of and uh yeah, yeah is now memorialized in a song on our last seven inch <laughs> nice um, okay, we uh, guess we'll move on to you ultimately, I, mean, I don't know if I'm skipping ahead too far, so let me know, but you ultimately wound up touring in Europe before the demise of the band, right? Is there anything yep. significant that we want to go over before European tour? Or should we move into that? Um, let's see. Well, the rest of that U.S. tour was really great. Um, uh, any particular bands that you want to mention that you played with that were... You know, inspiring or, or fantastic. I played two tour. shows with Spitboy on that tour. Uh, mm-hmm. The one in Santa Cruz, uh, in particular, stands out in my mind as one of my favorite shows uh, that we ever played. Uh, it was supposed to be at some art space or warehouse or something, and uh, cops showed up, and it. I think it got shut down before it even started, and then it got moved to a house and. Uh, there was just this like great energy of like I don't know if the cops are gonna show up again like yeah. we gotta hurry up we gotta play like short sets and it was like packed with people and uh, it wound up being us Spitboy and uh, this other band from Philly Bleed and uh, yeah. Yeah. and I just remember really really enjoying that show because Spitboy was like a band that we were friends with but also uh, I really inspired by yeah it. felt were yeah. really inspiring and. Uh, and just playing with them was really fun. On their home yeah. turf. We played Gilman with them yeah. too, right? Yeah. And that was, I mean, for me, that was that was special, just playing Gilman. We did a couple shows. Yeah. Was that the tour? I can't remember. With uh, Indian Summer as well, right? Did we we play did play with them in, uh, yeah, a couple places in Dallas and I don't remember where else. But Fort Worth and maybe Armadillo? Amarillo? Armadillo, Texas, El Paso. So, and yeah. I, I just remember a lot of Oh, and Julia. Yeah, yeah, Julia. Yeah. I, remember a, I just remember a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, all these tours, it's like all my memories are like fun stuff, just as friends and as experiences. And like, I remember playing, <laughs> I remember playing Seattle, and we were, <laughs> you know, I had become a coffee drinker um, just being in college and being in a band, and the one that usually ended up driving at night. I guess Chris and I would stay up and drive at night. And I remember going to uh, go Starbucks. Yeah. Like we had never really Starbucks wasn't around really, and like we were just drinking rest stop coffee. We went to Starbucks, and they're like twenty ounce coffees with soy milk. 
refills, 25 cents. We all drank, I, and me, I, I had Jeff, me, and Chris all drank 40 ounces of Starbucks coffee <laughs> before, a, before a show with the Velvet Elvis. And I remember like, just getting ready to go on stage and I was like, we were just so completely like wired and shaking yeah. and stuff. Like, yeah. but it was kind of fun. But fun. for people who were not, you know, ones that were, that um, tended to alter our states, it was pretty interesting. And then we had to drive from there to Rat South City, Dakota. South Dakota, <laughs> yeah. and we left that night, and um, I just remember being completely wired and driving, all, all of us talking, like animatedly talking, like all through the night, remember the sun coming off, and we just drove like 36 hours straight to South Dakota. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, did it, how did it happen that there were no shows between Seattle and South Dakota? Well, it's a hell of a <laughs> 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 it was really a fucking wasteland. Yeah, we, we had, had one day. <laughs> So we had to do it. So you went yeah. back in time in the process. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had one day to get from Seattle to Rapid City, you know, which... Every yeah. band that I've played in, it's been tough to get anything around that area. There's just huge expanses of land and very few cities or even larger towns that might support a punk scene. And then getting them to set up a show for you on the one day that you have open is yeah. not always the easiest thing excuses excuses i remember the holy grail for us was we wanted to find a vegan buffet for five dollars oh man that was like our holy grail and i remember stumbling out of the van two o'clock in the afternoon in rapid city south dakota going to the bookstore where the kid who was putting on the show worked and saying is there anywhere to get anything to eat around here and he's like yeah there's this collective restaurant up the street Five bucks, all you can eat vegan buffet. I think that was, <laughs> that was Nate, wasn't it? Yeah. Nate, single file line. Yeah. Yep. He uh, he hooked us up with that place. Yeah. That and awesome. that was like, that was all the, I mean, every town we probably have stories like that, good and bad, of <laughs> stuff that we did. A lot of it's food related for me, and probably Chris too. Yeah, food related. Always food related. I remember being on Chicago other tours where Chris could name the date of every show and what we ate that day. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm that. Are you getting pre-seen on onset dimension now? You're starting <laughs> yes. to lose it. I can't remember the show on August 21st. I can't remember what we ate. I'll say it's Taco Bell. <laughs> we did Taco Bell yeah. all on the second tour. Yeah, we, we had decided that that we, we were opposed do it. to it, and uh, we managed the second tour without eating Taco Bell. I remember that. So yeah. did a, Is that the tour you brought all the Happy Camper? Um, remember the. The like natural sleeping yeah. pill things. <laughs> I believe that was that tour. Yeah. Yeah. Those little packets. All right, so we need to kind of well, yeah. we need to move it along a little bit so it doesn't. I think there's one thing worth mentioning is that before the second tour '94, we played the uh, Dayton one of the Dayton shows, yeah, yeah. Dayton Fest, in uh, I guess June '94. Was that uh, the second one? I believe it was the second one. Yeah. Yeah, more and, the music. Uh, I think that kind of was like the almost the crescendo of everything. I mean, that was like the everything was just going. You know, you have these two, three-day festivals, bands over the country playing, uh, at the time it was in Dayton, and, uh, I mean, it was just, like, it was incredible. I mean, like, you had, this, it was just a huge event. I mean, you had, all, you had shows going on, you had people doing various events, you had, Benders you know, people from all over the country. It was just, like, it was just the, um, almost like the culmination of a couple of years, you know, building and it just for a couple those two or three years however long the, the festival was going on it's just like uh it was really kind of like i don't reflected what was going on at the time yeah and you really want to go back in time and see you know what what 
what it was like, you'd probably go to a dating festival and see, and you got a pretty good idea of what everything was like. Yeah, especially, yeah, definitely on a national level. I would imagine that a lot of these different people weren't really seeing what was going on in other parts of the country. I mean, the band may tour to them, or they might be in a band that tours, but for other people, they're not kind of seeing, like, what is happening in all these different scenes in the U.S. That's true. And here, they're all there, Mm -hmm. so they're probably all kind of cross-pollinating and influencing each other. And it was interesting, too, because you would go there, and since it was June, you know, you'd be, you'd be hanging out with friends that were in various bands, and it'd be like, well, I'll see you in a couple of weeks in California. I'll see you next month in wherever. You know, everyone was going, getting ready to go on tours that summer. And it was just kind of, look back how, I guess, interesting it was. Everyone was, like, going all over the place, and you would meet someone, you know, three weeks later in Minneapolis, and you'd go meet someone in Texas, and it was just like everyone was all over the place. You'd go to someone's house, and like, oh, I saw you at John Hills' house last uh, spring. And it was just like... There's like amazing connection of, you know, which, you know, it still goes on today, but, you know, at the time we were kind of living in, you know, within it and stuff, it was just, uh, it's one of those things you don't forget because it's like, you know, unique. A lot of people don't get to experience that type of, uh, you know. Yeah, you always, you always, that was one of the things that I, I loved and, met and, and miss is that you, you felt like you were a part of, of something special and unique and not that you were above anything or, or greater than anyone but you you were part of um of a it was like a, a major large extended family you know um and and everyone had very positive intentions and and like-minded ideas and um it, it was it was uh um it, w- it was like a well-knit community in in some respects you know um it just was incredible yeah the um, and then that let's see the beginning of '95 after we uh, got back from that summer tour we recorded our seven inch our last seven inch uh, I don't remember the date of that Chris you remember that one when the last seven inch was recorded um, yeah it was like September '94 yeah uh, now prior to that there was a LP released I don't know if we mentioned it yeah I mentioned that uh, or maybe I didn't mention that but yeah that was before the ni- that was before the summer of 94 tour we were yep. touring and that is the Dead that Dog LP. Summer LP yep released by Old, Old Glory Man. Records who also put out our last 7 inch right. and uh, the last 7 inch was American Woodworking yep named after my father's business I still yeah. have my American Woodworking t-shirt do you really? I wear it when I run <laughs> yeah awesome yeah uh, so we did a short tour down to Florida um, and rented a 15-passenger van, which I believe was the Flamingo, right? Oh, you remember that better than I do. I remember the van. Yeah, uh, which was a great little tour. We just did, it was basically we wanted to go on a little vacation somewhere warm and it wound up, the whole band was going, so we set up two shows on the way down and two on the way back. Uh, that was it? I thought we did more shows than that. Nope. It was... Um, it was Columbia, South Carolina, I think maybe Richmond, Pensacola, Pensacola and uh, New Orleans. Oh, okay. huh. oh, yeah, it was Atlanta, Columbia, yeah, Pensacola, Carver, and uh, Carver, New Orleans. Yeah. yeah, we played with Carver's a driver. Uh, the Pensacola um, shows with the Vale. Yeah. Uh, Louisville was uh, my friend Bryce set up that show. New Orleans, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, but that, that tour, we... Took so many people with us, uh, and then you wound up. Yeah, my met brother up with you. Uh, yeah. met up with us with a separate group of people in New Orleans. Uh, so it was just this huge, basically like Philly 
punk uh, spring break <laughs> trip to Florida, uh, minus the drinking and shenanigans. Uh, we did some Canadian tour. We did, we, we did some Canadian trips too, right? Didn't, in, in we never played in Canada. Yeah, we never played okay. in Canada. Huh. We went up there for New Year's Eve. Yeah, I remember going up to the Sea Shop Maker guys in like yeah. Ottawa, and we were going to Montreal to see friends. So yeah, yeah. Uh, and then late spring. Two thousand five uh, was when we went into went on the European tour. Uh, Did you say two thousand five? Sorry, nineteen ninety five. Which yeah, this guy Barrett, uh, who was in a band called Stack, uh, offered to set up a tour for us. Uh, our friends in the band Iconoclast kind of yeah. had toured there, uh, and Born Against, and. Um, one or two other bands that we knew of uh, had done European tours. And uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, he was interested in setting up a tour for us. And uh, At the time, it was kind of unusual for, for real DIY-type bands to tour Europe, right? I mean, it was usually yeah, kind of a Yeah, it was also band. Like kind of an ultimate goal. It was kind of like that was yeah. something that we were striving for. Totally. Know? But it was extremely unusual. I mean, really, like, the only bands I knew of were Iconoclast, Born Against, Spitboy and I think uh, Downcast maybe mm. uh, were the only bands I knew that had of like the DIY Tim scene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was very unusual, and I believe we're the only DIY punk band from Philly who had ever, uh, at that point, had done a tour uh, of Europe. Um, so yeah, we set up a seven-week tour, uh, and. It was also a hell of a lot of work and really slow moving communication, you know, writing letters back and forth and maybe one phone call that cost like a zillion dollars. <laughs> uh, but I just want to say on the record, I don't know if I've ever appropriately thanked you for doing all that work <laughs> yeah. because that was, I think all we all agree that was like, you know, all these tours were yeah. it was signature moments in our lives, you know, yeah. and yeah. You did wow. a lot of <laughs> <laughs> to the listener, bulls crying. Yeah. Oh, true, thanks, though. guys. Yeah, it's really true. It's very it's emo. True. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, shit. I loved it, and I, you know, it was our band. I, I would do anything, and I did everything I could to, uh, to make these things happen. And uh, yeah, that tour was fucking. Phenomenal, it's also. Amazing. Yeah. Even experience. the shittiest, shittiest parts of it. Yeah. Such as our show in Madrid. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about uh, this. Where the fuel line on our van, Herman, van uh, was named Herman. Uh, it was actually Hair Man, which is like Man Man. It was a German, it was a, a 1973 Mercedes van that was owned by a like carpet and like whatever decorator things that still had the original logos on it but it was completely covered in graffiti <laughs> and, uh, and on its last leg yeah uh so yeah fuel line broke right as we were driving into this horrifying squat former insane asylum i think outside of madrid spain like outside of madrid spain in the fact that the city ended <laughs> yeah like it was so the city ended and it was like desert yeah for like 200 yards and then this compound so it was like you're standing in this compound it was completely pitch black 
there's 200 yards of like this like desert scrub stuff, and then this huge city like right there. And was, a but like falling apart piece of a highway that was never completed or yeah, something. Yeah, it was really. It was real weird. There's tarantulas running like walking in <laughs> thing, and there's tarantulas running around. Rats. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we had a bad feeling about the show when we pulled up. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, uh, the place was. I don't even know how to begin to describe it. Uh, there was no one there, from my recollection, who had any idea that there was even supposed to be a show. Yeah. Uh, was that the night that there was supposed to be the show that you got there? Yeah, I believe oh, yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, so we were stranded there and had no idea. There was nowhere to go. Uh, we were stuck in this place. It became apparent to us that the only income anyone there had was uh, selling drugs and everyone, including all the like stray mangy animals appeared to be strung out. <laughs> uh, we learned from someone that they grew some crops on the land via humanor, aka human shit. <laughs> Which was theirs. Which was theirs. From their butts. From their butts, uh, <laughs> straight to the vegetables. Uh, and which ones didn't go into the vegetable garden went into the giant in-ground pool that was their uh, only toilet. There was a ladder, so you'd hang <laughs> off the ladder. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. How, how much did they manage to fill of this? I didn't look. Um, I have a photo of it. it. God, was it instant death when you got within, you know, oh. <laughs> like a mile of this thing? I mean, that had to have been the Chris worst. Chris and I went in. Walked into town, went went into Seven Eleven, and walked into the employee bathroom. The dude was yelling at us, but we hey, like, had to understand. go so bad. We just walked into the employee bathroom and locked the door. I'm being so happy. There's a bench outside the, the store like, on the street. Just sitting on this like, city bench, being so happy. Like I was like not there. I was in this, like, this in front of like some busy street, just sitting on a bench. Just like oh, this is great, and I, I didn't want to go back. But I think what's funny is before that is. The person's name who did the shows in Spain, we had no information. So essentially, we were we essentially calling number. the city of Madrid saying... We had a phone number. A phone number saying... <laughs> I forget the thing, but we were, we were looking for a show in Madrid. And that's all like the information. We had no directions. We had the, we had the number, and his name was Carlos. Carlos. <laughs> but none of us... Very uncommon name. <laughs> <laughs> we called the number, and like his mom or somebody was answering, like, hola. And Paul <laughs> just like, uh, <laughs> Carlos... <laughs> Carlos. Carlos. That's all Carlos. He could say. Carlos? He obviously wasn't <laughs> home. And um, we were kind of, yeah. Uh, until we got hold of Carlos. Yeah, it's true. Did you play the squat? Uh, there was a weird courtyard, and we decided, because mainly because we had nothing, nothing else, else to oh, do. Oh, and the other thing was Fugazi was playing, playing in, that night. in Madrid that yeah. night. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So That's really that would what possibly did. come see us yeah. was, was going to be at the Fugazi show. Yeah. Yeah, there would have been a great crowd otherwise. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. All our Spain shows were so great. Actually, Barcelona was good. Barcelona was good. Yeah. Roger, he was great. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we wound up playing in this courtyard to no one. Literally no one. No one. But <laughs> the three people that were with us, three or four people. Uh, and occasionally someone would wander by. Uh, so we just, like, fucked around and, like, played solos and, like, I don't know, did goofy shit. Uh, but then ne the next day... Uh, Adam wound up rigging up some fix on the on the fuel line with like a piece of a hose and some electrical tape MacGyver. or something <laughs> that got us the fuck out of there. <laughs> At least till we could get to a garage to get a new piece or something like that. I kept that van going until it um, until we blew the engine in the Alps. Yeah, I remember that. 
Hey, what's that stuff coming out the back of the, <laughs> the oil? Luckily, we were going down a mountain and not up. We yeah. coasted for three miles into the exit. Into the McDonald's parking lot, yeah. where the other folks who were with us wound up spending the night, uh, where we got picked up so we could play the show by someone in a very small car. Yeah. Drove us into Madrid. Or, uh, not Madrid. Zurich. 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 Uh, and Barrett managed to get us another van that he borrowed from the band, ABC Diablo. <laughs> Uh, <coughs> the Unfortunately, the windshield exploded. Yes, on the <laughs> and the radiator got fucked up too. <laughs> that was an amazing thing. Yeah, there was a lot of stories from that tour. Yeah. yeah, I think that I think the thing that I take away from that that I thought was so interesting was we played a show in Hamburg, that was, and it, it kind of tied in with what was going on here and what was going on there. I think, and the, and the reason that we had a really good reception there. You know, I think that there was a lot of interest in the kind of political stuff that we were doing because post, you know, this is only a couple of years after the wall fell. There's a lot of stuff going on, you know, Germany, German reunifications, like all like in the mix. And, and you know, and we, we went to Hamburg and there was a huge squad. It was like an old school. It was like a city block. It yeah, was yeah, huge. huge. Rotoflora. And, um, that's the name. Okay. And, um, they were having like this weekend long thing where they were having all these workshops and, you know, basically activist workshops and, um, political meetings and, and then at night in the kind of central part of this thing, they were having shows and we were invited to play. But that, that week, the German authorities had raided the offices of a popular leftist, I don't know if it was a magazine or a newspaper. It was newspaper, a radio station. A radio station? Yeah, I think it was a pirate radio station. Yeah, and, and everyone that was at this you know, thing started protesting. So these huge street protests erupted while we were there and then kind of in the midst of this thing, it was really fascinating to kind of be witnesses to that, to be standing on the roof of the squat and seeing like, you well, know, they tried to get this, into the squat. Yeah. yeah to see yeah. these confrontations on the street, people we were with were involved and one guy was arrested and you know, they're shooting, they had the water cannons and the paint paintballs that they were shooting into the crowd. And you know, we didn't know if they were going to storm the squat or you know, they locked the gates and it was, and we played an amazing show. I remember yeah. the, the energy and stuff were like, you know, oh, yeah. but I think it was, it really kind of highlighted some of the stuff that was going on. And I think, you know, it was also, when you think about later on with, you know, the continued protest movements and then into the Occupy era and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was all kind of a continuous line from there and from then, you know, or, you know. That was part of some stuff that was already happening and has kind of continued to this day. But I think it's also interesting is that in Europe and also the two U.S. tours is that we were kind of at the kind of like this um, this kind of bridge between you know the cities were starting to come back and before they're getting gentrified at least the area, you know the more the um, outside the city city center areas and I think we played at a lot of places where you're. They were on the edge, but they were starting to get, um, you know, gentrified. And we were pretty much, almost everywhere we played for the most part, was that we experienced, you could see, you know, the changes that would come, you know, 10, even now, you, that people today don't really see. But, you know, 
we were kind of involved in that and also all the conflict and all the um, the tension that came with that you know and because um, obviously a lot of shows or people lived in areas that weren't expensive and you know I think I I know it influenced me a lot because that's what kind of influenced me what I wanted to do with my life because I just um, I think punk rock was very much even then it was starting to you know, back when we were younger, the cities were very dangerous, you know, no one really went into them like they used to, and then we got older, they were starting to come, you know, people were starting to go back into them again, and I think, you know, a lot of our shows and, uh, in Europe and the U.S., um, you know, we're, we're kind of experienced that, very, the beginnings of what is happening today, and it was interesting how everything was changing and kind of seeing, you know, from, from that viewpoint, and uh, I think yeah, it explains point. a lot of... I think the punk scene in general, how things, the whole idea of community and local scenes was really important, like, you know, you know what, where you came from and how people, and the houses people lived in and all that kind of stuff, I think it was really influenced by, you know, the city living. Because if, if we lived in Cherry Hill and all the bands we played with and they lived in, you know, Anaheim and things like that, I don't think it would have been the same as if they came here and visited us in Philly and we went there to LA or San Diego and places like that or San Francisco. I think it's... You know, I think that was, you know, at the time it was kind of, you know, unique, I guess, and a good learning experience. Okay, I want to begin to to wrap things up. Uh, so why don't you explain what led to the demise of the band, which I guess was in 95, so perhaps not long after this tour? Correct. Yeah, uh, pretty much. Like a month or so. What killed? Was it really that three. soon after? Yeah. Yeah. We got back on the... Shit, I don't know where the sheet went. There it is. Uh, Early July. No. Yeah, we got back at the beginning of July 1995. We played our last show August 5th, 1995 at ABC No Rio with Los Crudos and Shotmaker. Nice. Uh, we were supposed to... We were originally planning on doing the European tour and then a U.S. tour and uh, with Shotmaker again. And at some point... Uh, during that time, we decided to uh, not go forward with the U.S. tour. Uh, I think it was towards the end of the European tour that we decided it was time to hang it up. I mean, I guess I guess I was the one that kind of said that I couldn't do it anymore. So it was maybe, I guess, I don't say I broke the band up or anything. I remember... It's Chris's fault. Nice job, Chris. But, uh, <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> I guess at the, at the time, I was just... I don't know. My mind was just all over the place. Like, I was just exhausted and kind of like I felt like I you know I was going to school full-time I was trying to like um, you know pay for school pay the rent and I you know I felt like I was just completely overwhelmed with things and I was just stressed out I think I just at the time I just uh, I think the idea of going on the US tour again was I couldn't it was too much for me and I think at the time I didn't know it wasn't like well can't we just cancel the tour my mind was like well if I could, we don't go on that tour, then like the band has to break up or something. I think that's how I thought. I guess in hindsight, maybe if we canceled that tour, I could have, you know, we could have, you know, kept on doing the band for, you know, I don't know, onward and stuff. But it just, you know, for whatever reason, that's how it, you know, that's how it happened and stuff. So, you know, I don't know how much longer the band would have stayed together, but you know, I felt like at the time that's why, you know, I think it's. It's important to me. I feel like the, the a lot of bands break up because like they 
people can't stand each other or everyone goes different ways and things like that. But I think like we never, you know, I know personally, I th it was never like that. I think we just, it was just more of a, the way I felt about like my life in general and stuff like that. And I think it was good that we broke up, not like hating each other and like, you know, calling each other names and stuff like that, having this bitter fallout, which seems like a lot of bands do and things like that. That's my experience. I think being, I think, you know, I mean, we were 25, 26. We had, you know, I think, I, you know, I was graduating school. You know, you're thinking about a lot of different stuff. And it's, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, you know, for us, or at least for me, it was, it was, it was never anything that I saw as a career. You know, I never thought that, even if we could have, um, I, I don't know. I just, I guess I never had the confidence. I never felt like I was good enough or talented enough to ever be, like, it never crossed my mind, like, this is what I would do. You know, that it's something that we could actually, like, make a living from. And, um, you know, and I know I had other goals. I had other things, you know, I was coming out of school, I was, you know, kind of, yeah, doing different stuff, too, so, and I think it's just, it's a, it's a hard age, you know, I mean, that's, you know, it's a common thing, I think, for bands to reach that point, too. But it's, it's funny, because I knew, it felt like there was, like, a death in the family, I mean, I felt like it was, I was like, you know, shocked for months after that, even though I was the one that kind of said, I can't do this anymore. It was just like this traumatic event at the time. Yeah. And I always kind of think it's weird because other people in bands would just, you know, they'd be in a band every three months and they would just, and I, I, it was just weird. I couldn't process that. It seemed like you put, I guess it was like, there was so much input into that band that when it was, when it ended, it was just like this like traumatic experience, so to speak. You know? I, I was not ready for it at the time, you know, personally. It was, um, it was very, very, like you said, devastating for me. I, I was extremely crushed for, for many, many months after that, you know. I mean, it was everything. It was our lives. It was a huge part of our lives. And it gave us so much, and we poured so much of ourselves into it. Um, it was, just like you said, it was very hard to reconcile. You know, it, to to have a huge hole, <laughs> you know, was suddenly there. Um, so it was it was tough. Um, uh, for me, uh, I I definitely was was not um, ready. You know, to stop. I felt like we were just getting to a point um, where every things had already been clicking. Um, but but I felt like there was a lot of good things for us on the horizon. Not not like a, as in a sense of you know this is going to be our career and going to do for us of our lives, but. That, that there was a lot of potential um, for us to, to grow more, explore more, um, develop more music together. That was, was, I think every time we put out a record, it was different from the last record in some fashion. Yeah. And the music that we were creating was, was, was different each time we got together and played. Um, and, and I just felt like there was so much more for us on the horizon. So it was hard for me. It was very hard for me. I think I had a delayed response. Because, you know, I was getting ready to go to grad school and all this stuff, and I was busy, and my <clears throat> first, you know, I went to grad school, and this was after, you know, this would have been, I don't know, the next, the next, yeah, the next fall, um, and, 
you know, I had a lot of personal stuff that, and I think a lot of it was related. You know, I lost like this thing that was a huge part of my identity. It was like the one thing that I think really brought me happiness. Like it made me feel comfortable the whole, like, you know, when I look back on my childhood and stuff like that, it was like being in the band was the only time I felt like I had good group of friends felt, you know, creatively satisfied and, you know, just had that cathartic release of being able mm-hmm. to play shows and have these goals and travel and things like that. I don't think I realized it at the time, you know, and I think it was like six months or a year later that it really hit me, you know, that, and I don't think I recognized that's what it was. Um, you know, I had other stuff at that time in my life with personal relationships that ended up being really good. And, you know, my career and different things, you know, started coming together at that point. But, um, but yeah, it's like, you know, there's a lot of hindsight there looking back, like, oh man, you know. Bull, any, uh, how, how did you react to the demise of the band? Uh, I also had a hard time with it. I mean, I, when I have things in my life that I like, I tend to stick with them for long periods of time. Uh, so yeah, I wasn't really ready for it either. Uh, and yeah, after investing, you know, like all of us, a lot of time and effort into it, uh, it was hard to accept it being over. It was like a, the, the band as a unit, you know, was like a friend dying or something. Uh, and it just, it also made me wonder like, you know, what our relationship as individuals would be like after that. And, uh, it was tough for a while. Uh, I was also in a relationship that wasn't that great and had like a crappy job. Uh, so it was a, it was a tough time. Uh, I was also 21 and didn't really know how to process many of my emotions at that point. Uh, even though I was in an emo band, uh, <laughs> it took me a while to figure out some of that. That's probably why we were doing that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're trying to figure it, it out. Like, I, I wish I could have done it differently. Like, I wish I could have said everyone honest and say, I, I really I can't do this tour. Yeah. I'm going to go crazy. And I need, but whatever, that's my response was to it. It wasn't really, you know, thinking ahead for six months saying, well, it's only six months from now we can, or three or four months we can start doing it again. It was like six months even at the age of like 24, 25, six months seemed like two years or something. Yeah. And just, uh, it, was, it was one of those things. And, you know, it's... And things are breaking up, you know? Like, all we had this large group of friends and people were moving and, you know, there was just a lot of shifting at that time. And I think that, you know, you look at the way we've lived our lives since then, you know, like... I think I crave, there's, there's a part of me that craves like stability and, you know, I think I knew early on that I always wanted to have a family and stuff like that. And I loved going on tour for three or four weeks and then I just got really homesick and, you know, I also didn't feel comfortable. Like I couldn't imagine, you know, continuing the sharing a room in a house, paying 150 bucks a month in rent, having no savings and, you know, like, I was just, I'm just too nervous of an individual, like, <laughs> you know, like, I, I just, you know, like, well, what about health insurance? And like, you know, like, you know, what, what about this or whatever? Like, that's just my, so I didn't, I, I you know, 
And I think I was rationalizing with that stuff at the time, like, well, what's the next step? We can, you know, and I, like Chris, probably could have been like, if we had kind of knew what we knew now and just been like, well, yeah, we can take some time to figure things out. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that we needed to stop. Um, so this means you're all getting back together now. <laughs> yeah. Geography is an issue. <laughs> uh, uh, we only have a $8.20 guarantee for each show. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to thank you for not having a cheesy reunion show. Yeah. Uh, as, as so many other bands did. Yeah, there unnecessarily. are out there. Um, all right. I want to end the thing. And, but the way I'd like to do it is to have each of you, we'll start with Jeff and we'll move around, kind of give a, a, a brief summary of what you feel you kind of took from the experience of being in policy three, you know, any other, any observations or what you're kind of left with, how you look back on the thing now as we're about to enter 2014, nearly 20 years since the band broke up. Golly. Yeah, you're really, you're really old. Damn, and I have the gray hair to prove it. I should say that everybody looks really good in the band now. I mean, you're like clean living lifestyles as everybody looking nice. Um, um, yeah, so you know, for me, um, I, I, I've never, I haven't had any, anything in my life that has, has given me so much back, you know, except for my kids, right? My kids, it's, that's something different, but on a very personal level, um, that it, I am immensely thankful for that time, um, and that experience that I had with these guys here. You know, it, it, it was, um, uh, you, it's hard. It's 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 really hard to put into words to to say it in, succinctly, um, but it it made it it made me a better person. You know, I think after after policy of three, I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things that I wish I hadn't have done, um, and and I I kind of I went on a on a. It, you know, the scale went one way, completely another direction for me. Um, after the band broke up, I had had a relationship with a woman for three years, and we split up a few months after that, and I just kind of went to a bad spiral. Um, and and it was always trying to find a way to get back into that feeling again, you know, and it, it never was never there again. Um, it was very special um, um, time in my life that, that I'm immensely thankful for. Um, it 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 opened my eyes what a cheesy thing to say but to to um a better way to live a better way to be um it was it was a lot more than than music um and and it was um i think something i had said earlier it was it was a community um that that was very tight knit and very very open um very very warm and friendly uh, you could go across the country like we had done and stay at people's houses. They would feed you and house you and, and, and you know, take care of you and send you on your way to the next show. And albeit it was for pennies, but, you know, it was, it was uh, it just a, an amazing experience um, that, that uh, I'll never forget and I'll always be thankful for. Adam? Yeah, I think that, you know... I think a lot of people have these defining things in their 20s or, their or the late teens and 20s that really kind of shapes. I know my dad still talks about that part of his life, you know, to this day. Like, that's his time in London and things like that. And I think it's the same for me. And, um, you know, 
um, I think, you know, it's funny to think it's been almost 20 years and even longer since we started playing together and being involved in that. And it's like, I think about how much my life is still kind of influenced by that, or I'm still like very much the same person that I was then, you know, it's like, um, you know, Katie, my partner, my wife, um, she's from the scene, you know, she, what, South Jersey, lived in West Philly, activist, act up, you know, books through bars, A space person, very heavily involved in the community out here, you know, like, we moved to Vermont because we wanted to maintain a lifestyle that, you know, um, that fit with our personal politics and have been able to do that and have kids and stuff and have two girls and I think the way that we live our lives and the, what we're doing there, it's so different in some ways than, you know, the people we interact with and the community we have up there. Um, you know, we come from very different places, but the ideals and a lot of the stuff is the same. And, uh, and I think that, you know, my time in the band is more so than college, more so than, you know, high school or any of the other things that are supposed to kind of form a person is probably like made me who I am. And like Jeff said, like, I'm immensely grateful for it. And I like, um, yeah, I can't imagine you know, what it would have been like not having that experience and like, you know, even though we've lived apart and, you know, I still consider Jeff, Chris and Bull my best friends, you know, it's like that stuff that we shared together is like that age and that amount of stuff that we did, it's like family, you know. Um, yeah, I make my kids call Bull Uncle Bull, and then they don't see him that often. <laughs> and he loves it too. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's it was it was like great. It was a great experience. I mean, I think it was what Jeff and I said. I mean, it was just um, all those things, and just I think the ability to just have to like you know work work together and cooperate with other people, and you know just interact with people. I mean, it just there were so many learning experiences from that that, you know, 20 years later, you can just apply it to the world. I mean, you know, tr treat people good and, you know, they'll hopefully they'll treat you the same way and, you know, work together, you know, like a team, you know, as far as things I've done or like would like to do. I always had the idea of like going into something like together, with, you know, for whatever it is and uh, just this a learning experience and just a... Uh, you know, and, I, and also the idea that all that was done based because I wanted to do it. Like no one, I never had music music lessons, and I never was, you know, encouraged to do any of it. it was just like this is what I wanted to do, and I did it. And also the most important thing, there was no monetary value associated with any of it. It was just mm -hmm. pure, out of pure. This is what I want to do. This is what I love to do. It was so much fun, and did it for the sake of doing it. There was no like monetary reward in it, which is important because it seems like anything with money involved doesn't have the same kind of importance than something you do that has absolutely nothing, you know, you know, financial gain. You know, those things are the most important things and that time period really kind of encapsulates that and is kind of the foundation for for everything I believe in because the most important things and the things I enjoy the most 
or the things you really have in there, like financial gain. It's just out of something you do for the sake of doing it because you want to do it, you love doing it. And yeah. It's very pure that. In, that, in that sense, right? And it was never tarnished like that. I think, you know, I mean, we never had, we were never this huge, huge band, so we never, like, we had, you know, we could make a living off it, so to speak, at least at that time, but, you know, we were never, I felt like it always was kept, we did it exactly how we wanted to do it. You know, we, I don't think we ever had to, you know, I think we always treated people well, and we tried to do everything the best we could, and we tried to, you know, be respectful for everywhere we played and stayed. Mm -hmm. and I don't think we were ever obnoxious to other bands or people we stayed with or show promoters or whatever. I think we just tried to, I just think we, it, everything about it has a good experience about it. It was a good, a good memories and like just, uh, you know, it's a, it, was a it was a great time and it was a great learning experience. Bull? Uh, I, I always think of the band as the best college I ever went to experience. I kind of pride School myself of on hard knocks. Yeah, not having <laughs> gone to college. Uh, but, you know, from age 15 to 21, uh, I played in this band and, and it taught me so much. It pulled me out of this extremely shy uh, kid shell and, you know, forced me to interact with people to set up shows or you know, playing with bands or negotiating how to split up the money from shows or, uh, yeah, trying to convince someone to do a show for us or review our record or whatever, uh, doing all of those things and then traveling around the country and having to, you know, creatively problem solve as our van breaks down somewhere or a show falls through and we have nowhere to stay or whatever the case may be. Um, and then also just, you know, all the good parts too of, uh, being able to travel all over the country, do something that a lot of people will never have the chance to do in their life, and then being able to go to Europe and putting out records, you know, things that people dream of doing that we were lucky enough to do through our hard work and creativity. Um, it's, it's just taught me a lot and kind of helped form who I am as a person, uh, you know, now, yeah, almost 20 years later since we split up. Uh, uh, you know, I look back on these times with just the fondest of memories and, uh, yeah, and still consider all of these guys my best friends and, and a lot of the, uh, folks that we, that were, we were closest to at that time too, you know, like Dwayne Dixon, the guy who did all of our artwork, Jen Langham, who, uh, you know, traveled with us a lot and, uh, was a close, very close friend, is still one of my best friends, uh, you know. A whole host of people, even, you know, years, 10 years later, going on tour with other bands and playing in Europe and running into people who, uh, who I met on Policy of Three tours, uh, and just seeing amazing things that they're still doing too, has just always inspired me. And, uh, that's kind of off topic, but, uh, but it's, it's just always been nice to see that too. Uh, but yeah, this band had a huge huge impact on who I am as a person. All right. Well, I want to thank the, the four of you for doing this. Uh, and I'll say, personally, since I began the project, uh, I really wanted to talk to Policy 3, and I, I was fearing that it would be impossible that all four people would be in the same place, because I don't think we mentioned at the beginning that the four of you haven't been together in the same place since 2005. Uh, is that correct? Your, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris's wedding. So I was really glad to find that everybody was going to be here for this, because for me... As four individuals and as a group, 
you guys personified what I think was some of the best, the very best of what 90s hardcore punk was. The ethics, the morals, and just being really nice folks, you know? Uh, like, there was no member of the band who was, like, a jerk or was mean or creepy or anything like that. Like, everybody was really nice. And as ambassadors of this city, you know, Philadelphia or New Jersey, like, going around the country and around the world, always brought something really positive to it. And I think that that the lasting influence of that is, is still there. Um, so for me, it was really great to be able to talk to the four of you, and I'm glad that we Thanks, got to do Jeff. this. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate yeah, it yeah, very much. much. And so far, you are the longest interview. <laughs> Yay! Well, there's four uh, of us. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Okay, thank you all very much.